Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Please join Self and Society at Substack. Our guest today is Ian Silveri, former leader of Progress Now Colorado, founder of the political Bighorn Company, and first gentleman of Colorado's 7th Congressional District following the election of his wife, Brittany Pedersen. So first, why are we talking? Ian and I have some fairly different views in, when it comes to politics. I think for a while, I kind of had this running dispute with Progress Now over, I can't even remember exactly what at this point. But so <laughs> it, it's no secret that Americans have been especially polarized the last few years, or at least that's a widespread perception that, that we've been widely polarized. So I thought it'd be interesting to have two people come together with very, very different ideas. In a lot of ways, we also have a lot of overlap, as I want to discuss, and try to have a civil and productive conversation. Now, that doesn't mean that I think all possible conversations are helpful. I'm not going to have a flat earther on my podcast to discuss why flat eartherism is the position. I'm not going to have a neo-Nazi on my podcast to discuss why white people are better than everybody else. So I think that there are limits to who we can fruitfully discuss, have discussions with. But I think Ian and I are both living on planet Earth, basically. And we have quite a bit of, we share a lot a lot of common ground, enough such that we can maybe talk through our differences and at least try to understand where the other side, the other side is coming from. So what about you, Ian? What motivated you to agree to come on a podcast with this crazy libertarian guy? Well, who first you, of all, thank your you. organization hates. Well, my former organization, I don't know who they like or hate anymore. I never hated you. I always thought you were, I like you taught me things, right? Like I didn't know what a classical liberal was. You taught me what that was. Like whether you know that or not, whether like that was like internet osmosis or like an intentional lesson. Um, I learned a lot from you. And I, I, you can ask my friend Kelly Mahar. You can ask my friends Kevin Priola and Mario Nicholas. Like I have lots of friends across the political spectrum, even though many of them are sort of former Republicans now, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they're still conservative, and they still believe in like the certain size and role of government being what it is, and the certain freedoms and liberties of individuals and and groups being what they are. So, um, I'm I'm like you. I'm willing to have a a discussion with anybody who will give me a fair shake and who will come at it with a degree of intellectual honesty. I mean, I've been on conservative shows. Caldara had me on his like devil's advocate thing when I was on paternity leave during a pandemic, and I like just needed human interaction. So that was nice. We both played a ukulele. We both have the same ukulele, which is interesting. Um, and then there are other radio hosts on under the auspices of, of having a conversation like this and instead proceeded to browbeat me and be intellectually dishonest and try and trap me and talk over me and I, i'm not interested in that and i don't think you're the kind of person who would do that so that's that comes that's later why i agreed well cool so that's like episode two once you've got me like then then i get my ass kicked i think i guess it's partly a matter of political strategy and self-preservation when you're in a somewhat purple state as colorado at least as colorado has been I mean, to have influence, you have to be able to talk to people who don't agree with you on every issue. And I think people on, quote, both sides of the aisle would agree to that general idea, at least as Colorado has been in the past. Now, Colorado today is maybe a little bit different. You can argue whether we're purple. You can argue whether Republicans are willing and interested in having fruitful conversations. We can get into some of those issues a little later on. I wanted to first do a kind of a biographical section session section. So first of all, congratulations on the victory of your wife, Brittany Pedersen. 
Thanks so much. And thanks for pronouncing both of our names correctly. That is not a feat accomplished by many. Okay. Well, that's partly luck, but (laughs) thankfully I got it right. So just an interesting aside, I used to be in Jared Polis's congressional district because I'm in North Jefferson County and the line used to go below where I live, but then they redrew me into Ed Perlmutter's district, which I was not happy about. I liked Polis much more than I liked Perlmutter as a member of Congress. But of course, now, um, once Perlmutter, quote, retired, i.e. went into a high pay lobbying gig, then your wife stepped immediately, not stepped, like jumped, bounded into the vacancy with both feet on the ground with a rocket jet on her back, ready to go. I mean, she just, nobody else, there was a few other people talking about maybe entering the Democratic side. And that lasted about one day, if I remember so I think she was ready and willing to go is an understatement. We had had a practice round before. So back in 2017, Ed briefly ran for governor before Polis got into that race. And we were getting married, uh, remodeling our house while we were living in it. And Brittany's mom was having lots of struggles with her opioid addiction at that point as well. Um, and she was running for Congress then too. So we had done so once already in an even more chaotic environment with three, two of our very good friends, Andy Kerr and Dominic Moreno also running in the primary who were also at our wedding, which was in the middle of this fucking thing. And then, you know, Jared got in the race Ed pulled the brakes said, I'm going to run for reelection. Everybody dropped out, but we kind of had like the apparatus built. So like, we just kind of had to dust it off and like hit go and, because redistricting was happening and because the lines were getting drawn in all sorts of weird ways and the the state ledge map got done before the congressional map, we were just kind of like looking at the universe over New Year's. And I can like go into more details in the story if you're interested. And we're like, look, he might do it. He might not. He To Ed's credit and my great frustration, he would not tell us what his plans were. He has a lot of everybody loves Ed Perlmutter. And there's a lot of good reason for that. And Ed Perlmutter loves pretty much everybody, too. Um, and I know you may be in the minority on this one, Ari, but, um, the guy has, look, my first race ever, 2008 Gwen Green state house campaign in Golden. I don't know if you were living up there at the time or not. Um, but she worshiped the ground this guy walked on and I worshiped the ground that she walked on. So by the transit of property, Ed Perlmutter was the man. And, um, he's always been a huge mentor and supporter and everything. But when he was making this decision, he wouldn't tell anybody because he knew a lot of people were going to run for his seat and he knew a lot of us were close to each other. So we didn't have a day of advance notice. We didn't have a minute. I think he announced, on, he told his staff on like a Saturday and I think Brittany announced on that following Monday. So we had like 24 or 48 hours to kind of get our shit together. And she is, you were right, both feet on the ground, jetpack. She has one gear. And that's it. Anybody who's ever worked with her will tell you the same thing. She's relentless. She's determined. She's smart as hell. She gets stereotyped and shortchanged. And, you know, people say all sorts of terrible shit about her because she's a good looking woman in politics. And that's kind of comes to the territory, I guess. Um, But, you know, ask Jim Wilson from Salida, ask Kevin Priola, ask Chris Holbert, who's one of her closest friends in the legislature. Like she does not stop when she wants to get something. And she generally comes out on the winning side of it. 15 points in a district that's drawn to be sort of maximum plus seven plus eight that I think says a lot by itself. It was a impressive achievement. At the same time, I voted for Brittany because largely because that and we're very grateful opponent, Eric Adland came right out of the gate saying that the presidential election was absolutely rigged. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
we have to set the bar at least at preserving the American institutions of government. Or like we general can't get there. objective reality, like one of those two. Yeah, so, you know, is this kind of, I mean, no offense, but she's kind of my default vote. It's like, you know, the least, the least bad person It counts person the, the same as an enthusiastic supporter, man. I mean, like what you announced this publicly and I was like, honored's not the right word because it wasn't me you were honoring, but I was like, I appreciated that. I respected that. And I, and I realized that not only does she have some sort of broader appeal than like a democratic base, like she clearly does, but he has a lot of problems with conservatives and libertarians and people who are oriented toward the truth and your endorsement and not endorsement per se, but your, your uh, default vote. Let's go with that helped us kind of figure out what we were going to go after him on. And we didn't do anything personal. We didn't do anything evil or nasty. His ads against Britney, I think, were quite a bit more personal and a little bit over the line. We just showed three clips of him talking. And the things that he said turned off a lot of voters. And it turns out a lot more than maybe even we thought. Well, I thought one of the most effective ads that I saw was the one with Britney's mom. Yeah, Stacey. and I didn't. I wasn't exactly sure what that was in response to, but something about she's soft on crime or soft on drugs. And this this ad basically said, "Look, Brittany is has her head in reality. She's make she's just about sensible policy. So don't try to play this up for political uh, gain." And I thought that was very effective. Thanks. I mean, he didn't have enough money to like go on the air. like. You're running a congressional race in a district that either is or could be competitive. You need three or four million bucks. Like it's the reality. It's an unfortunate situation. But like, if you're going to talk to that many voters in an efficient manner over a long enough period of time for your communications to do what we call burning in, like for people to actually see the ad and be able to sort of recite at least the point, which is what you just did, um, you need a ton of money. Denver is a really expensive media market. CD7 is almost entirely contained within the Denver media market. It's about 70%, 30% of it is down in the Colorado Springs market with Teller County, Fremont County, Custer County. Um, but up here, it's like, uh, we got to buy the same points as Michael Bennett and Yadira and Kirk Meyer and the IEs uh, candidates get better rates than independent expenditure committees, but it, it's an expensive proposition. So he cut like three ads, two of them were like him standing in a river pretending to be a conservationist. And I was like, if your issue is the environment, you're just not voting for a Republican in Colorado. So like this guy's just like shooting blanks from day one. Um, and then the, the negative he put out was just like, it was so hack, right? It's like picture of her literally like half in a frame with like her eyes half open. Like that's a hack tell, like, you know, try and make the person look bad is like, why would you do that? Like, like take an honest picture of them. Like that, that's what we did. That's what you should do. I think, um, we only use photography. He provided like high res on his own website. And that's all fair game. As far as I know, he took a still from one of her ads. And made her like, you know, one eye half open or whatever. And uh accused her, I think, of killing 465 kids with fentanyl. Like it was it was it was really fucking over the line, in my opinion. So I mean, we knew this was coming because Tony Sanchez tried to do this in 2018. It backfired spectacularly on him. I don't know if you remember this, but back then Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman came out and 
endorsed Britney and maxed out to her campaign at that time for the state Senate, because she was like, this person has done nothing but fight for this cause. And how dare you like this is below the belt and like good on Attorney General Kaufman for having the integrity to do that. A bunch of other Republicans came across at that point. Mario, that's when we first met him, for instance. Um, and it was really and, you know, Mario had run against Tony in a primary previously. So it's not like there was any love lost between those two guys. But it was cool to like be able to talk to Mario and, and get him on the team, essentially. Um, and then, you know, we knew we were probably going to get attacked on that. They are disingenuous and they were telegraphing. And I mean, this is the thing. It's like, I'm not on Twitter anymore, um, which we can talk about if you want to, and has been like terrific for my mental health, but people kind of telegraph their punches in this business. I think a little too much where they're like, oh, this is what we're going to go after you on. I'll never forget this Rick Enstrom, like who's a friend of mine. We, you know, fight, but I, I consider him a buddy. And I think he'd say the same about me. He said when Odland won the primary, he said it's it's neighborhood injection sites versus bronze stars. Let's go. And I was like, okay, I know what this campaign is going to be about. And I know how to win this one. And we know how to win this one. So we filmed the ad assuming they were going to come after us on it and assuming we'd have this to hit back on it. And yeah, they're pretty fucking predictable when they tell you what they're going to do. Listen to them. Did you meet when she was in the legislature? No, uh, we had met before. So it's it's kind of funny story. No one no one's ever asked this before, um, at least not on record. Um, so I was a staffer after I was like a caucus staffer after the 2010 election. I was the deputy communications director for minority leader Sal Pace uh, from the fight in 46th in Pueblo. And him and Paul Weissman, who was a former member of the House and Senate and his chief of staff, kind of brought me from the campaign side to the Capitol side. Um, to like help fix what I broke in terms of getting the majority back in 2012. So, you know, we lost it in 10 by one seat that was decided by 197 votes, gave Frank McNulty a big hammer for two years. And I worked really hard for those two years to take that away from him and never give it back. So I'll, you know, take my lumps, but also take some credit for it. Um, she was doing the like, do you have two minutes for the environment thing with a clipboard on the side of the road outside of City O City when I was like walking from the Capitol to my car or something one day. And it was like the middle of January. It was actually three days ago, 12 years ago. We just celebrated our like date anniversary, which is sort of what we call it. And um, she was just standing there in like a big like snowboard coat with her like giant blonde hair kind of everywhere. And she was like, do you have two minutes to save the children? And I don't think I said this, but like, this is sort of like the lore of the family. And I always qualify it this way. It was like, no, but I have like 20 minutes to talk to you if you like want to chat. And I don't know. She found that to be not insulting and perhaps endearing. And we stood there and talked for like three hours. And it was just kind of like, I just, I just fucking knew. I was actually, at that time, I was working at a lobbying firm, uh, Fuffy Mendez's firm. Back then it was Mendez Consulting. I think Pat Stebbin had just got elected to the state Senate. So he left her firm. And I walked into the office after that lunch break and I said, I just met the girl home and I married Fluff. And she, Fluffy Mendes is the first person I told. I called my mom. I said the same thing. You're a rom-com movie. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, there's like, absolutely. We, uh, my buddy David and I like wrote a couple of fake treatments for a show we called General Assembly, which apparently Brianna Tatone had the exact same idea with the same title. So she'll probably end up getting credit for it. And that's fine because she's okay. Um, but there, that was like a, a dumb plot line and a fake show that doesn't exist. Um, but yeah, it, it was very meet cute, I think is what they, what the kids say on the internet, right? What was she telling her friends? 
uh there's this, this dude game. came up to me <laughs> well what she was telling her friends was i just met this really great guy and i think he's in love with me and i just want to be his best friend so for a year we were just friends like that and i would kind of occasionally mention that i was deeply in love with her and she would occasionally say that she didn't want to lose me as a friend and then one day she actually just gave me a shot it has a lot to do with this is not what you invited me on the show to talk about but it has a lot to do with the fact that uh her best friend april is also married to a younger guy named ian and i guess there was some kind of like mystical serendipity to that where she was like all right whatever we'll go on a date and you know 12 years later here we are well congratulations on that thank you yeah Um. yeah but I do want I do have a couple of side questions about that. So we're we both are married to very successful women. So we have mer- very modern households in that way. Now that your wife is in Congress, do you find and you're still in politics? Yeah. Do you find yourself ever tempted to self-censor in order to protect her career? Or is that not really an issue? No, it's it's a great question. And quite frankly, I'm I've been the biggest drag on her career over her entire life. Like she would have probably gotten elected to Congress much sooner if it weren't for me. Um, but it's one of the reasons why I left Twitter. I told that to Michael Roberts when he interviewed me for Westward for some reason, thought that was newsworthy. Um, it wasn't the reason. I I had lots of reasons why I wanted to leave that terrible website and why I'm very, very glad I did. I think a month later, um, totally vindicated and really happy with my choice there. But yeah, I mean, like it wasn't like Megan Schrader and I had a deal that if Brittany won the primary, I would have to stop writing for the post. And if she won the race, I probably would be permanently stopping writing for the post. That just makes sense. I have no like quarrel with that at all. Um, It was a deal we had like a long time before she even announced. And um, the state Senate was one thing, but congressional races are another. And it was for the control of the House. And, you know, it was this whole thing. So um we we always had a deal though. I never wrote about her. I never wrote about things she was working on. I actually had to like actively avoid big things I wanted to write about, like fentanyl, like opioids, like issues I really deeply care about because Brittany was working on them and she was kind of front and center. And, and that was the deal I had with Megan. Okay, fair enough. Um, but in terms of the self-censorship thing, it's like they try and use me against her all the time. And in fact, we actually caught, I, forgot, I, almost, I almost forgot about this. In 2018, we caught a Republican poll that tested a bunch of shit about me. That was like, if you knew Britney was married to the like radical left-wing socialist who like wants to destroy, like says there's no crime, like all this nonsense. Um, apparently it fell flat because they never communicated on it against her in 18. They just ran the same bullshit back. It didn't work that time either. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's always been like in the back of my head. And the thing is like, she knows she can stand on her own. And if the world weren't like so sexist and stupid, like I wouldn't be like they wouldn't try and bludgeon her with me but because it is they do and it doesn't work and she wins by 15 points so like they can keep trying if they want to but i'm i'm very content with how my sort of public figure life came and went right like i i love attention i'm like a italian jewish kid from the east coast i like people patting me on the head and tell me how smart i am and you know, go uh, so many people, especially like the older folks at Britney's fundraisers would like come up to me like, I just love your columns so much. I'm like, yeah, you're the, the one who still reads the fucking newspaper. Like, this is great. Um, and that was really nice. But like, I, I did my nine news thing. That was really fun. I did the Denver Post thing. That was really fun. I did progress now for four years. I wanted Cory Gardner out of office and I wanted to pass paid leave. We did both of those things. And I made my point. And then I was like, you know what? Better to go out on a high note while they're still fucking laughing at the jokes. And I hung up all the public stuff. She got elected to Congress and good. 
she's the one who people should be paying attention to. She's the interesting one. She's the smart one. She's the one with a story to tell, things to say, and good ideas. I'm just a lucky asshole who happens to be interesting enough for people to want to talk to sometimes. Well, I would have invited her, but I figured she wouldn't even have responded to me. She's so busy now. So, <laughs> I mean, that that's the thing. I wouldn't take it personally. It's more like a, a time and resource allocation thing than anything else. To go back to the, the capital staff thing real quick because I wanted uh -huh. to finish that point. Okay. So there's a, a House rule, and I think a Senate rule too, and I'm, I'm certain they still exist, that says that members and staff cannot date for obvious reasons, right? You don't want like a member of the legislature like going after a young staffer and 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 using their power or position or pressure. But, but we had met before and we had started dating. We had actually moved in together. She in 2012, I was working at the state party and my boss, who was, we were both in charge of the House races, didn't tell me he was doing this, went around my back and said, hey, have you ever been interested in running for office? And Brittany was like, no, no, no. People like me don't run for office, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you have a great story to tell. You're a top operative. Like, you know how to run a program. Like, you can raise money. Like, you should really think about it. And then he sent waves of people after her. She told me one day she wants to do it. And like, my immediate instinct was like, oh, no, don't do like." There's no money in this. There's no real power in this. Like it's a lot of frustration and they're, you know, people are going to say horrible things about you all the time. I don't want to deal with that. I work there. I don't necessarily want my girlfriend at the time, like coming into my office, which is like just a place that I've worked for a long time, but I kept all that shit to myself because I'm not a stupid idiot. And I said, if you want to run, I'll support you. And if you don't, I'll support the decision too, knowing that if I had tried to put my thumb on the scale one way or the other, no matter what the outcome, I would have forever been dumb and wrong about it. So tips for the boys and you know those in relationships with people who are way out of your league, don't fucking tell them what to do, support their decisions, y'all. Um, and then like she got elected and and I went to the to the lawyer, this guy, Dan Carton, who was the, uh, the sort of chief counsel for the legislature, uh, head of legislative counsel. And I was like, look, man, here's a rule here's my girlfriend who just got elected. Like, do I have to quit my job? And he goes, well, it's very obvious to me that the rule does not contemplate a pre-existing relationship. This is to ensure that power dynamics in the legislature don't allow one person to pressure another. So as long as you're both consenting and willing and the caucus doesn't mind, then yeah, you're free to keep working here. And I did. And I worked there with her from 13 when we took the majority back in the house all the way through 16 when I left for progress now after the May session. You guys totally are a rom-com. Yep. If you were only a Republican, then it would be perfect. The perfect setup. Like just why can't we way... be Democrats though? Well, it's just not as, then you don't have all the ideological clashes, you know, Oh, that's part of the relationships. Oh yeah. So... I see what you're saying. If one of us were a different member of a party, that would set up. Yeah. It would be like the James Carville thing, right? Like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to just mention from my perspective, I don't think it should matter that you're married to her in order to do media stuff like for the post. I don't see why it's a big deal. I mean, it's not like you're going to be less biased in her favor just because you're not married with, I mean, you know, 100%. she's a Democrat, you're a Democrat, you agree with her. So you're going to say the same stuff. I would write glowing things about Alec Garnett and nobody would blank, right? Like, <laughs> so I, I don't really get that personally. Um, well, cause you have integrity and, and you don't have these sort of like gotcha cables in your head waiting to like distribute them to somebody. And you also don't have a defense mechanism set up for that. So like they pounced, I mean, like the, they've been trying to get rid of me for fucking ever. They got 
me kicked off a nine news when I pulled the world's greatest prank. And they thought that was the end of me. And then Megan brought me back for the post and I did 70 columns for the paper and they were pissed off about that. And then they like, oh, finally, Silverio, shut the fuck up. We've silenced him forever. And to me, it's like, you guys spent a lot of time and energy coming after <laughs> some schmuck with an opinion, like good for you. But I don't disagree with you, but I also do see why an organization like the Denver Post with the sort of you know troubles they have already between Alden and people accusing them of all sorts of bias or whatever the news media is going through. Well, yeah, I mean, Republicans might accuse the Post of being left-wing and biased. It's like, hello? <laughs> it's like, that's not going to change one way or the other. What, what I'm not you... accusing Megan of this at all because I actually think she's terrific and one of the people with the most integrity I've ever worked with. She let me say things that like would have actually gotten people in trouble and like I when I, I went after George Brockler by name when he decided to dox a bunch of fucking teachers and parents in Douglas County like that was a rule we had like you're not supposed to go after each other by name but I was like I'm not gonna let this one stand so either you let me write this and this is my last column or you want me to come keep coming back for more and and she defended me and I appreciated that very much um but I think there's this tendency in the media, and I think this is a trick that Republicans uh, do on purpose, um, to accuse them of being biased. And then if a story comes out that says this Republican did the shitty thing, you can just say, oh, look, the biased media is being biased again. But if you get good coverage, you say, ah, look what a genius I am. I have overcome media bias to land this wonderful story. So it's like a win-win, right? Like you can't fucking lose if that's your like mental modeling or framework and if that's what you put out into the world. So I think that's very, very much on purpose where Republicans own way more media in this country than Democrats do between Sinclair and all the talk radio stations and all the sort of online media, like the pound for pound audience wise, there's way more Republican and conservative leaning media than there is progressive or even middle of the road media at this point. Um, but it's a great piece of victimhood for them to trot out and, and be able to win it both ways. Do you think voters have become more sophisticated in certain ways? For example, not being as swayed by drug war hysteria, not being as swayed by some of the sexist stuff that might have worked in previous decades? I think there's a lot of evidence for it. Um, I think Colorado voters are exceptional. Uh, I think we're, we're the most highly educated state per, per capita in the country. That has a lot to do with it. We are opening new news outlets. Other states are closing them, right? Like the Colorado Sun gets like two and a half million visits a month. That's fucking amazing. They just pulled that out of nowhere. Like that's just remarkable stuff. Um, Colorado politics, like all the TV stations, all covering, like go to other states, see what the legislature coverage is like. And like, you will be blown the fuck away by the embarrassment of riches that we have in Colorado here. It's, it's really, it's really something. Um, so I think voters in Colorado have become a lot more sophisticated, and I think they can tell truth from bullshit. I think, look, I mean, crime is higher than it was four years ago. Inflation is higher than it was four years ago. Like, there were objective facts of the matter of a case to prosecute against Democratic leadership in Colorado, whether or not it was done so intellectually, honestly, or I think you can argue that. But like, you, they had a bunch of numbers they could be throwing at us, car thefts and fentanyl, and they tried. And it didn't work at all. And it wasn't from lack of resources and it wasn't from lack of discipline. I don't like her very much, but credit where it's due, the current party chair, outgoing party chair, I guess I'll say, ran the most disciplined messaging that that party's had since I've been here. I, I thought it was horrible, cynical bullshit, but I thought it was disciplined. And that's something they've never been able to do here. So, you know, all that money, all that stuff, all the the fake think tanks and the common sense institute and all this network of bullshit, uh, the Gazette, 
doing what it does, especially on the editorial pages. You could make an argument that some of the reporters are doing a little bit of editorializing in their in their articles. I won't name names, none of the good ones. Um, but no, it didn't work. It got them the smallest fucking minority in the House in living memory, zero pickup seats in the entire state. And a 20-point win for a guy named Jared Polis. That is, and 16 points. Michael Bennett not only finally broke 50% for the first time, but he absolutely crushed that O'Day guy. And, like, I thought O'Day was kind of lame. He wasn't, like, a terrible candidate. He ran a bad campaign, took bad advice from stupid people. But, like, on the on paper, that guy should have been competitive, and he wasn't. I find myself in a strange position of... Wishing that Christy Burton Brown were again running to head the state GOP. I mean, she and I probably disagree more than you and I do. Oh, I believe and it. I'm, and so, well, she's yet, a theocrat. I mean, she wants like her religion to rule the government. That's not well. That's thing. how she got her. That's how she made her name for herself, trying to totally. outlaw all abortion in the state. Right. But she's smart. She's a lawyer. Yeah. So she's effective in that way. And and there's a certain way in which I feel like I can talk to her, like. She's on the same plane of reality to at least to she at least she has one foot there, whereas some of the Republicans are just like they're like living the um, Bircher conspiracy lunacy all the time. Heidi Ganahl literally went to the fucking John Birch Society, like literally went to a John yeah. Birch Society meeting and what like promoted it. Not like there's nothing like there's nothing wrong with these. These are just conservatives who agree with school choice, just like me. Well, that's what. That's one thing that struck me about that campaign. It's how much she leaned into the crazy. It's like, there's people like me saying, hey, maybe not do things like that. And she's like, I'm going to do twice as many of those things tomorrow just to make a point. And I'm like, the furry gate thing was, what are you doing, man? Best example of what you're talking about. Or it was just like, there's these big flashing warning signs. Stop fucking talking about this. And then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk about this again tomorrow. And the day we didn't touch that thing. That just happened because she wouldn't stop. And it's like, you know, the first rule, right? When your opponent's making a mistake, in this case, lighting themselves on fire, just get out of the way. Yeah, that was, there was a lot about, there was a lot about the Republican politics that I found extremely frustrating the last, well, <laughs> for a number of years now, if we get to it. Um, we've been talking about abortion a little bit, which I want to circle around to later. How much of a practical effect do you think that issue played in your race? Britney's race in particular and the state. It was, it was huge period. It was huge across the country. It was huge in Colorado. It was huge in CD seven. I think it made the difference in Yadira's district too. Um, Barb Kirkmeyer's on camera saying, I want, I, I not only, you know, outlawed abortion, I, 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 uh, or I'm not only in favor of personhood, I banned plan B from the Weld County health clinics. Like good for you. Um, bet she wish that tape didn't exist on the internet, but like, Abortion is a really important fundamental human right. It's about bodily autonomy. It's about being able to control your own destiny. It's the it's the core. It's like one of the most core libertarian issues I can think about. Like I can even think of is like if the government is telling you what to do with your own body at any point, something is is gone terribly wrong here, right? I mean, especially is something as intimate as reproductive health, as intimate as childbearing, as intimate as abortion. That's a that's a tough choice. It's a painful experience for anybody. Like, uh, you know, and I think the other guys have a lack of empathy and a lack of basic understanding of biology and 
I think they don't have an intellectually clear or honest argument because when you push them, they always end up in the Bible. And it's like, okay, well, like, I'm sorry, but your book is not in charge of the country. Like, if we're going to have an honest debate about a policy, let's talk about the pros and cons of of which kinds of, like, do you like Sam Harris? Are you like, do you ever listen to him? He has like a fairly, I think, integral, like, position on abortion, which is like, I think it is morally, oh, this is Sam Harris talking, not Ian Silveri. Sam Harris thinks it is morally hazardous to like have third trimester abortions because there's like a lot of evidence that there's like brain activity and heartbeats and and cognition and and feel and nerve endings and things like that. That's a totally fair argument to have. I don't end up agreeing with him because I side with liberty and bodily autonomy before I side with a, a creature that in my opinion does not yet exist. I'm Jewish. Our faith supports abortion for the very, very most part and like guarantees it as a right. So I'm also pretty confused as to why one religious group's opinions and freedoms and religious freedom matters and another one's does not. (laughs) Why it's okay for things that my religion supports and protects to be outlawed, but why something that uh, a a baker doesn't want to put a rainbow flag on a cake, why he's, you know, not subject to the same laws I am. Well, I'm going to bracket that discussion, but uh, please do. <laughs> I mean, I do even on the religious aspect, I totally agree with you that religion should not be guiding public policy, but you'd be hard pressed to actually come up with a good case that Christianity opposes abortion across the board. Well, that's the I mean, other thing, nothing, isn't it? There's nothing in the Bible about that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it's all like in the in Judaism, we have the Talmud. It's sort of like the Supreme Court precedent record of of rabbinical argumentation it's like here's the here's what we think right now based on these arguments from these guys christianity i don't know catholicism i think has something like that but i don't know if like evangelical christianity does and and so what you end up doing is you end up saying well you know it's god's creation and and we can't destroy it unless it's you know muslim or unless it's you know trans or unless it's insert group of people that we don't actually think are humans here and then you know they're you know it's a free-for-all whatever or if you're a home invader or if you're a drug addict donald trump says that he wants to execute drug dealers like what the fuck (laughs) like where have we gone wrong that like the death penalty is what is where we're going as a country for somebody who's either like has a substance use disorder or i think there are plenty of drug dealers out there who are terrible people and who are poisoning communities. Don't get me wrong. The state murdering people because of it though. Mm-hmm. So know. I'm just going to take a little diversion here for viewers. So long, like t- two decades ago, I was in the libertarian party today. The libertarian party is a total basket case of alt-right edge Lords. Yeah. To the extent that they compared Ukraine Zelensky to Adolf Hitler. that that level of crazy all the time and so this is one reason why i i hesitate to call myself a libertarian or to identify as a libertarian even though i will concede you know i have a lot in common with libertarians in the in the better sense and if somebody calls me a libertarian i'm not gonna squawk too loudly um but then i became unaffiliated i became very disenchanted with the libertarian party for some specific reasons here in colorado um one of the Senate candidates for U.S. Senate ended up in prison for a few years, yep. among other things. Um, By so the way, because, Ross Klopp, very good guy. I don't know. I don't even know that person. He was the libertarian running in CD7, Ross Klopp. Um, oh, okay. Showed up at a bunch of forums. I met him walking down the street. He was on the corner of Wadsworth and uh, Alameda waving signs one day. And I was like, 
hey man i just want to say hi uh, i think you're great uh you know my wife's Brittany. i think she's gonna win and i really want to thank you for running and he's like oh Brittany's awesome you're awesome oh no 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 wait is this wait i'm i'm missing which district is in is this the the guy in the rock who's head who works with a rock band or is that the other district no that was uh so the guy who some people think spoiled the cd8 race um is like a i think like a lighting guy for like a metal band or something because he got like eight percent and the other libertarians and the other congressional districts got like four percent so I don't think anybody like did anything to make that happen. Besides, my theory is that Barb Kirkmeyer looked at the camera and lied through her teeth. And voters in Colorado are smart and don't want to be lied to. And when they saw her do that, a bunch of them said, "Nope, not happening." Either voted for the Libertarian or just skipped the line. That's but arguably, theory. a Libertarian in your race did not hurt your your prospects. I mean, didn't help Bodlin very much either. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so then I was unaffiliated, and then I. Before, when Donald Trump said he was going to run for president, I joined the Republican Party specifically because I wanted to try to keep him from getting the nomination. So I'm a Republican now, but for kind of an unusual reason. Oh, you're still registered as a Republican. I I am, yeah. And I don't know what to do. I mean, the Republican Party is a basket case. If any of the candidates who have announced to head the state GOP win, it's just like, it's just crazyville. So I, and who, but who could win? So Jason, on my podcast, the Get More Smarter Show, and I talk about this almost every episode. It's not. It's not just that the candidates are rotten because they are. It's that the electorate is rotten, especially the electorate for a state GOP chairperson, right? Like you can't get Wayne Williams through that fucking assembly. Like you can't get a normal Republican elected in a nomination contest like that. Like it has as much to do with the people who are running, in my opinion, as the people who are voting for the people who are running. So you're going to get an Odland or a Stockham or, or one of these guys who's pledging to, you know, do away with the most popular election system in the country and, and close the primary, which is also nuts. Well, we can, again, I want to bracket the primary thing. That's to me a more complicated discussion, but sure. I want to make a distinction between the broad electorate and the activist wing now, because I think one of the things that's happening is, well, and a lot of the people who were sort of the more moderate Republicans have just left. So they're not even participating in the Republican Party anymore. And a lot of people who are normal, they don't want anything to they don't want to go to the assembly. I mean, what what would you want to do that for? It self-selects the most extreme group of people to elect the most extreme group of people who are running. So I think there's a lot of people like me just sitting around at the edges wondering what's going to happen. Is just going to continue imploding? Is is there going to be a responsible adult in the room that stands up and says, Hey, we need to get, we need to move ahead. We need to figure this out and fl- flush the crazies out of the party or Part we're just going to never. Is that this was supposed to happen after Donald Trump lost the presidential election in 2016, <laughs> except he didn't. And since he didn't, there was this permission structure given to Trumpism, to MAGA, and then there was this opportunism executed by donors and people who want tax cuts and people who want, you know, deregulation and and all these things that said and people who wanted Supreme Court justices. Hey, we got an opportunity with this guy. He'll just sign off on whatever we want as long as we give him attention and as long as we like give him his performative platform, he'll let us just fucking run the show. So everybody threw in with him except in my opinion people with moral conscience uh, we've talked about mario colwist rob whitwer um kevin priola 
uh, you know, Bob Rankin didn't leave the party, but he resigned from the legislature. Didn't tell me why, but Bob's a really good guy. So if I had to guess, it has a little bit to do with the fact that he doesn't like the direction his party's going in. And then all these people get, you know, trounced in all these elections. You go into the legislature and on the first day, you they're pulling bullshit. They're not trying to work across the aisle. They're not trying to make a, a piece of policy. I used to say to members when I was chief of staff and they would come to my office and say, I want to do this thing. It's like, okay, do you want to make a law or do you want to make a point? There's like a thousand ways to make a point. There's only one way to make a law. Well, in Colorado, there's like three ways to make a law. But like, which is it? And nine times out of 10, they wanted to make a point. So I'd find a way for them to do that. And it's like, okay, come back to me. You have an idea for a law. And we'll talk about legislation. These guys don't want to make a law. They're just trying to make a point. And the point they're making is please never put us in charge of anything ever again. I, I find it hard to disagree with you at this point. So let me just, I was going to ask you this later, but I'll just go ahead and ask. Should I join? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> should I know I, what you're going to say, just take a deep breath. Should man. I join the Democratic Party? First of all, we're always taking new subscribers and, and members and entries. So as, as a lifelong Democrat myself, I would, I would invite you in with open arms. I think you'll find that um, the party itself is just a vessel, just a group of people, nothing, you know. Political parties have been weakened, you know this, by campaign finance laws and by independent expenditure committees and 501c4s and this sort of network of dark money that is allowed to exist. And I think you and I can actually have an interesting conversation about that besides the rest of this at another point, perhaps. Um, but the reason why I joined the Democratic Party, I was a young activist, you know, got arrested in 2006 at the RNC in New York and all this kind of stuff. And I, I was like, food, not bombs, like anarchy, anarchy, whatever, fucking listening to against me when I was in college. I had no idea what the hell I believed. I, I just thought I wanted to be cool. And like, I joined the Democratic Party ostensibly because like, they are less far away from being right than the other guys. And if you want to change the world, the best way to do it is to get involved in the the apparatuses that are currently in charge of changing the world and like move them in your direction. So like, you know, Jewish kid from Brooklyn by way of New Jersey showing up in Colorado and then getting to work on legalizing cannabis, getting to work on LGBTQ rights, getting to work on abortion rights. Like, man, that's, that's amazing. Right. Like I came to a state that I thought was like pretty conservative, like maybe tilting purple. And then in, in 10 years, it's a blue state. I mean, it's really hard to argue otherwise at this point. I think the evidence is pretty clear. So I don't know if you know the economics writer Noah Smith, but he recently made some he recently made some really interesting points about Jimmy Carter and about how he actually deserves a lot of the credit that Reagan gets. A hundred percent. It's and, a, it's a lagging indicator, right? Like the guy in charge of the thing is always inheriting the thing that the other guy put in front of him, right? And there's some of that, and some of what he was talking about is how he was the big deregulator in terms of airlines, in terms of yep. beer. I mean, the beer, the craft beer industry owes as much of its origins to Jimmy Carter and his policies. And there was this so, income protection going on, like there always is an industry where the distributors and the big breweries didn't want that kind of competition. So they just created regulations and laws to protect their own interests. This is like the most common form of lawmaking there is. People think it's like the government gaining power. Nine times out of 10, it's some industry group coming in trying to protect their existing market share from, from new entries. Okay, so now you're just sounding like a libertarian. So I have the, many libertarian tendencies. You'll find, the, you'll, yeah. Is there room in the in the Democratic Party, particularly in Colorado, for something like a Jimmy Carter deregulation, free market caucus? 
So before the battle lines got drawn with blood, I was talking to Americans for Prosperity when I was at Progress Now about doing occupational licensing reform because it keeps people of color and young people out of industries they belong in. And it, from a like progressive perspective, right? And from a conservative perspective, it's unnecessary government interference in the market. So I look for these horseshoe moments. These I, I used to call it wraparound extremism. Um, but these 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 ideological where like Joe Salazar and Justin Everett would like go to the floor together on the NDAA or some shit, right? Where it was like, I love these moments where like the far left and the far right, it's like Super Mario 2, you like go so far off the one side of the screen, you end up on the other one. And like, I just think that's terrific. So, you know, Brittany also did that with like Kevin Priola and the pro-life like ideology around opioids and substance use disorder. It's like, Kevin, people are dying in bathrooms. Like, if you're pro-life, then you want to help me prevent them from dying in bathrooms, right? And he's like, yes, I do. So they worked together on opioid epidemic stuff for, you know, six years down there from two completely different ideological perspectives, but recognizing the same problem. And before primary politics and redistricting and battles for the gavel were the whole entire game, that sort of thing happened a lot more. And I will say that even though this Republican, especially the Republican State House Caucus, has made it pretty clear they're not interested in getting anything done or working across the aisle, uh, Minority Leader Lynch has at least made verbal overtures, so I will exempt him from that for the moment. We'll see what that looks like in practice. Um, 80, 90% of the bills that get signed by the governor are bipartisan in Colorado. Like when I was chief of staff, the Senate was controlled by Republicans. So 100% of the laws that got to Hickenlooper's desk were bipartisan. And we worked on some hard shit. We cut some big deals around some, you know, uh, tax increment financing and urban rural renewal authority, big hairy problem that uh, Polly Lawrence and Dickie Lee Hullinghorse, two people who agree on very little sat down together, got together and worked that out. Like, I don't know, hospital provider fee. We like set the sort of ball in motion for that deal that ended up getting cut. Larry Crowder was, you know, sponsoring the bill with us back then. So I love working with Republicans and and, and I love working with libertarians and, and people who disagree with me. To your question though, is there room in the Colorado Democratic Party for a like libertarian? Yeah, man, Jared Pulse is a governor and he ostensibly leads the party in the state. And like, will I say that he's like a true blue libertarian? Like probably not, but like, does he certainly like center freedom and, liber and personal liberty as his like set of values from which he generates all the other things? I, I think so. I think it's pretty clear that that's what he cares about. And I and I've had arguments and conversations with him and his staff where it's like, you know, progressives want to do this thing and the governor is just not OK with it because he thinks it fundamentally imprint infringes on somebody's personal liberty that the classical liberal right is all about individual liberty and and i think that the questions that are interesting between liberals or progressives and libertarians or whatever you end up being these days defying labeling i think it's probably mostly it is like what are the definitions of liberty and freedom and then what is the role of government in our lives right and i think if you like have those conversations you get into interesting places but if you say like I want more government. Nobody really says that. I, mean, I want, I want a, a, I want a more active government, or I want a less active government. Like that's when I think like the conversation gets less interesting. You know what I mean? Well, I want to circle back around to some of those issues, but I wanted to just wrap up a couple of of little details. I think it would be useful for Colorado voters to understand how many unanimous bills there are out of the legislature. I mean, um, I'm not saying that's the majority, but some of my favorite bills have been unanimous. So there's this like phonics-based reading bill from a few years yeah. ago that was unanimous. The quote, free range kids bill was unanimous. Yep. And I, those are both 
Fantastic. A lot of the like cottage food act stuff, which is like home egg production and like mm-hmm. home like uh, canning and bottling and stuff. A lot of that stuff was unanimous too. Um, and, and I think like it has to do with the ethos and the, and the legislature is really interesting too, because so when I was a staffer um, for the house, Brittany was the whip. And that was sort of like my favorite session because it was like my job to help direct the action on the floor, but I couldn't lobby members and it was her job to do it. And we had a couple of members of our caucus because we only had 34 seats when I was chief of staff, we had a two seat majority. It was, it was a tight margin and like two or three of our sort of, you know, more progressive members could kind of like hold things hostage if they wanted to. Brittany would just walk across the aisle and start racking up votes on the other side. And it was like, we don't need you guys. Like, we'll, we'll get them over here. And she would just, with her charm and wit and argumentation and relationships, just get waves of Republicans to come over on our side to the point where it didn't really matter if the, you know, folks who were wanting to extract concessions, you know, withheld their vote or whatever. Another little detail, I'll point out, it wasn't that many years ago, I can't remember the exact year, that I attended a Republicans for Choice event with former Senator Hank Brown. And it was yeah, a well-attended event. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a lot of a lot of elbow rubbing there. And unfortunately, the woman who organized that left the state, so that kind of fell apart. But it hasn't been that many years that, that the Republican Party has been dominated by this religiously oriented anti-abortion wing. That's that's relatively new. And to me, that's one of the big problems with the party these days. Well, you also get like cascading problems from that. So like uh this I promise will make sense in a second, but there's a reason why like blood libel, QAnon, accusing trans people or people who support trans rights of being pedophiles is all in one bucket and a bucket right next to that is abortion is murdering babies. And those two buckets carry the same water. The reason for that is because if you accuse your political opponents of doing something abhorrent, like murdering a baby or sexually assaulting a child, you can get away with doing pretty much anything else to them too. And like, that is the scariest thing to me. It's that like the weaponization of ideology is no longer like, oh, we have a broad tent. There are some Republicans that support abortion rights. There are some Republicans that oppose abortion rights. That's okay. We all care about low taxes and the free market. So we'll get together and nominate normal people who can win competitive elections. That does not happen anymore. All that action's on the Democratic side. We have the bigger tent, especially in a state like Colorado, where we welcome people like ex-Republicans, never Trumpers, even people who like maybe got took in 2016. And then after a couple years in Charlottesville and all this kind of stuff, we're like, you know what? I'm out. We welcome anybody. Right. And, and I think a Republican would probably say that too, but this, the contract you got to sign to get on the red team is a lot different than the one you got to sign to get on the blue team these days. I had a few more questions about Brittany Pedersen. Sure. Should I call her represent Congress person Pedersen? You can just call her Brittany. She would insist on it if she were here. So. Do you have any big or small disagreements with, with her when it comes to politics? Oh, yeah. Well, politics, the strategy stuff, we're pretty aligned on. Like, we're we're both operatives. We both think about strategy the same way. We both think about sort of like additive politics, like the politics of addition, not subtraction, right? I think somebody else said that. Um, and how you build a bigger coalition to get more people to get the thing you want done. She like met Chris Holbert. They went on a trip to Israel, I think, or something. And he told a story about his personal struggles and his family with substance use disorder. Brittany told a story and like, these two people agree on nothing, but they had that in common. And ever since then, they worked on all sorts of stuff together, right? Mm. So like, I, I think that 
you know, there are plenty of issues that you could probably sit down and, and, and work out with the other side. What was your question? What? Oh, oh, Brittany and me on politics. So the strategic stuff, I think we, we mostly align on. I got a little bit radicalized in 2020 um, where I was like, I guess we have to go for like full socialism now. And then I got unradicalized actually quickly thereafter. And now I'm kind of just like, I, I don't know, like Elizabeth Warren Democrats, I think she's got some good ideas and some not so good ideas. So I don't like attaching myself to any one politician. But I think like, I don't have a better idea than capitalism. So like, I'm going to defend that. And I think it has, you know, Andrew Romanoff is the one who told me this, like capitalism has produced the most wealth and the most like, uh, you know, the highest quality of life for the most people out of any system that's ever been tried. I think that's probably right. Um, I'm going to clip just that one statement. You understand? Uh, yeah. And I, I can't stop you from taking me out of context. I just trust you not to. Um, but like, look, I mean, it, you know, have we really tried communism? Have we really tried socialism? Like, I don't want to have a conversation, right? Like, I want people to be free to live the lives they want, to love the people they want, to have whatever family that they want, as long as everybody's consenting and, and all these qualifications and disclaimers. Um, and ultimately, like, if you want to, like, open a, a, you know, a restaurant and, like, serve, like, low-carb food, like, great, you should be able to do that. There shouldn't be a lot of, like, government in the way. Maybe make sure we're not poisoning people. Unfortunately, that happens. Um, but, like, besides that, like, you know, let people live their lives. Brittany is definitely, like, a pragmatic progressive is sort of, like, how she thinks about herself, where she's, like, she's, like, using the tools of government and the and the strategies and tactics involved in politics to accomplish like a stated goal in her case most of the time that's how do we stop people dying of opioid overdoses that's like that's like what she thinks about when she wakes up what she talks about before she goes to bed right next to that is what do, how do we make sure there's a planet for our kid to grow up on and right after that is we used to have fire drills when i grew up now we have active shooter drills how do we get back to fire drills and like, those are like the three things that she like really, really cares about. And I care about those three things too, quite a bit. But like, I, she's like, you know, she didn't get the endorsement from the Working Families Party, for instance, this year, I think because she was not like going to support a full on ban on fracking right away, right? Like people need heat in their houses during the winter, right? You, I think, talk about electrification more than a lot of other folks on your side of the spectrum. And I really appreciate that. Um, but like we need some carbon-based fuel to get us from here to there, but we have to get to there pretty fast, right? So I'm going to just make an aside for viewers here. And I, this discussion is not for me to pounce on everything Ian says, and I'm letting a lot go that I could say, oh, but what about, you know Which what I I'm saying, and, have, and have, a, have a debate about it. But that's just not what I want to do here. And so, and I don't think it's that useful. So you know, just generally be advised because I let something nod my head and let something slide doesn't mean I necessarily agree with every single nuance and point. So I hope, hope I think people are smart enough to, to understand these things. I mean, the goal, you know, the goal is not for me just to be <laughs> anyone who's listening to you, I feel like has 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 figured out that you're more interested in having a conversation than winning a debate. So maybe there's a difference in just sort of temperament in that Brittany tends to be more pragmatic and practical minded and you tend to be more inclined to radicalism or at least thinking about that as a thinking about more radical possibilities so it's funny because i hold these two thoughts in my head simultaneously like i think incrementalism is kind of amazing because it has actually done quite a bit of good for humanity when sort of operated properly i think about the lgbtq rights 
fight in Colorado where 1992, the voters pass by almost exactly the same margin as Tabor. Interestingly enough, that's another conversation. Um, Amendment two, which basically, you know, says if you're gay, you can't get access to state services, your relationship will be recognized, all these penalized, you know, penalizations for sexual orientation and identity, which is fucking insane. Um, that passed and then got overturned by the Supreme Court under 14th Amendment um, violations, equal protection. And uh, uh, then uh, we started on the slow, like, intentionally incremental path of policy change designated beneficiaries, two-parent adoption, you can go visit your partner in the hospital, you can be on the same health care plan, you can be on the same mortgage without a quit claim, like, just these, like, sort of boring administrative things, so that by the time, like, the civil unions debate, like, ramped up and Frank McNulty decided to lose the majority over it, which that is one of the greatest political catastrophes I've ever seen in my life, and I would stand right fucking there, I was on the floor watching it happen, it was terrific, um, like, it was at that point, it was like, well, everybody has the same rights. It's just like, what are you calling it? Like, great. People should have rights. Let's make sure they have rights, right? So, like, I've seen incrementalism work in real life a bunch of times on issues I deeply care about. I have not seen revolution work. I have not seen the total overthrowing of a government work. I've seen that happen in other countries as I've been alive, and it seems to turn out pretty poorly generally speaking, for everybody involved, especially like one side. So like, I don't think we're in need of a revolution, right? I don't think we're like the tree of liberty needs the blood of the whatever. Like, that's not where I think we are. Where I think we are is like a, a crisis point where like, people like you and me should be having more conversations like this, and like less screaming at each other on, you know, cable news for ratings, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Ian, the free market conservative. I mean, again, like, but like so here's the thing so so let's like let my little liberal flag fly a little bit right so like i i think about this all the time and i think like the the idea about i think about freedom constantly because i think it is the most interesting concept that we have and if you haven't read the dawn of everything uh by uh david graber and the other guy yet it is worth your time because the entire it's an anthropo it's basically an anthropology textbook where like freedom is the central question next to like egalitarianism and next to inequality and it's it's just and it's like hunter gatherers or farming and agriculture and like human evolution and there's all this new stuff in the anthropological record that shows it was not a straight line from foraging to agriculture to industrialization there is a lot of mess in between and it's like interesting to unpack that when i think about freedom i think of two kinds of freedom i think about freedom from and freedom to right and this is probably not an original thought people who like I used to do philosophy when I was in college and then I graduated college and I stopped doing philosophy. I started doing politics, which is more fun, but less enlightening. Um, and like, I think conservatives, people on the right tend to want freedom from, or, or rather they want it both, but they want it for different people. So they want freedom from liberals telling them what to do, uh, censors telling them what words they can and cannot say, uh, regulators telling them what kind of stove they can have in their fucking house, even though, you know, 80% of the stoves in the South are electric, by the way. So I don't know who the fuck the audience for that, like, gas stove debate is. It's not conservative base voters, let me tell you that. Um, but I think they also want freedom, too. They want freedom to impose their religion on other people. They want freedom to, like, tell somebody that they think their lifestyle is bad and put them in jail for it. They want freedom to be able to uh, walk down the street without having to acknowledge the existence of homeless people or people of color or trans people or different people. So I think that they want it both ways. There's there's a saying, 
I forget who it's from, but it basically sums up the same idea. And it's like conservatism exists or consists of exactly one principle, um, which is that there should be laws that uh, they're an in group that the laws protect, but do not bind and an out group that the law binds, but does not protect. And that's basically the same thing as this freedom from freedom to idea. Whereas I think like most people on the left or liberals just want freedom too, right? They just want freedom. They want freedom from oppression and they want freedom from having other people's religious beliefs imposed on them and other people's sort of ideas of morality imposed on them. But they mostly want freedom too, right? And then the question for like the size of government or the level of government or involvement or whatever is like, okay, does creating a state health insurance exchange give people freedom to start a food truck? or pursue an artistic endeavor or do something that's not like STEMI baseline productive capitalism, right? Like does Ari Armstrong, are you able to like fund the life that you want to do with your writing and your creative production and, and that sort of like, for me, it's about what system gives you the ability to maximize the amount of time you spend doing what you do and doing what you want to do, doing what you love to do, doing what you care about, doing what you're interested in, and what system minimizes the amount of time that you're suffering or pandering or having to do tasks or complete duties that otherwise make you miserable, right? So that's, to me, the central struggle. And I think that a functioning government, and we can have plenty of conversations about what that means, is one that tries to maximize those good things and minimize those bad things. And I think that there are plenty of models of governance that have more involvement that can maximize good things and minimize bad things. And I think there are plenty of models of government that can minimize involvement and maximize good things and minimize bad things. Well, I'm going to jump over some of the things I wanted to talk about and get more into these questions, because I think this is more of getting to where progressives and libertarians are however you want to, whatever labels you want to attach to those groups of people, where they really start to differ. And I think what you're getting at has a lot to do with the welfare state, government providing people with means to do things. Sure. Um, The way I look at it is, in terms of the differences, is I tend to be very trusting of markets, which by which I just mean you know, people interacting voluntarily, consensually is a market. Right. So to me, capitalism, free markets include nonprofits, things like that. Um, and I tend to be coming from this as my kind of traditional libertarian background. I tend to be extremely skeptical of the state of government action. And part of this is coming out of just a, a memory, like a cultural memory of the horrors of the 20th century mm-hmm. with extraordinary mass murders by governments. Part of this is coming out of the American experience with Vietnam and Nixon and how the federal government in particular just let us down in some pretty spectacular ways. More recently, you can look at the Iraq war, which at the time I was not as critical as I should have been, and I and I am in retrospect. I mean, George but, Bush had a 90% approval rating. Lots of people lost their fucking minds, man. Like, I wouldn't take it personally. Well, the whole weapons of mass destruction thing, it seemed plausible. In fact, I think there was some minor evidence of, you know, some chemical program or something. But it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't the big issue that 
was supposed to have been the justification for the invasion. Um, but, it, you know, if you trust the government to sort of more or less tell you the truth about what's going on, which I think, you know, I kind of got suckered there. Um, and ironically, I was too trusting of the government, <laughs> more trusting than I should have been in that case. But but generally, nevertheless, I tend to be sort of very skeptical of government power, government solutions to problems, and a lot more trusting of non-governmental, just private market solutions to problems. And I think that progressives tend to have sort of the reverse orientation. They tend to look at markets with sort of a squinted eyes, like, oh my God, that means somebody is exploiting somebody somewhere. Sure. You know, sure. you can't get a lot of money unless you're exploiting somebody somewhere. Like that's just the default position. And they and progressives tend to be much more trusting of the government to improve people's lives, whether it's through these big welfare state spending programs, whether it's through running the government, the, the public school system. Right. Um, and this is where some of my radicalism is going to start shining through in a lot of ways, because I just generally that my first question is, does government need to be doing this thing? And how is government going to screw this up? Because surely they're going to, right? I admit that's kind of my default way of looking at things. And in my fate, in my defense, that's the way that things often go down. I mean, government screws up a lot of stuff. Um, so we, we've been, we've kind of talked around the circles of the drug war, and this is one area where I might be more radical than you. I'm not really sure. I, you're at least critical of the drug war. To me, the drug war has been one of the most catastrophic domestic policies of the United States of the last century. Yeah, it's it creates extraordinary violence, not only within the United States, which we talk about gun violence. A lot of that is violence stemming from drug war 100% but if you look at the south of the border we are just tearing these countries up i mean us led drug war which we're basically imposing onto other countries as a condition of our support which is also a big reason why we're getting a lot of these refugees coming to the united states because we have destroyed their countries. We have We've given their cities into war zones. Right, we have, with our we have given policies. the most violent organizations on the face of the planet, save Putin's murder army. Right. Um, just this, this extraordinary source of wealth and funding by selling us cocaine or whatever it is. Um, fentanyl lace cocaine now, I guess, whatever it is. And this has just been not only has it created more and worse drug problems in the United States, I mean, for example, a great part of the, quote, overdose deaths, that's a misnomer in many cases. What we're calling overdose deaths are really cases of tainted drugs killing people because people right. have no idea, no idea what they're buying because they're buying right. them from criminals. Right. Um, and if you just look at the – so to, to me, this is like a archetypal case of government radically getting things wrong radically screwing things up i mean literally resulting in just widespread murder death torture i mean if you if you look at what ha what happens in mexico i mean where where do you not want to be a journalist if you're a journalist i mean they kill a lot of people in mexico yep. and other countries south of the border and these are the drug cartels doing this because right Often now, in cahoots with the police departments, right? I mean, like there's a level of right, and now and yeah, and you're getting this. It's also destabilizing government to a large yeah. degree because the cartels are basically buying, 
buying political power and political protection. And a lot of the people in the government are essentially part of the cartels. And so I don't mean to rant too much about the drug war, but I, this is one area where we probably have some overlap. But for no, me, but this right is issue like to bring up because like let's so like you've identified the problem, I think, spectacularly. Let's talk about the answers, though. So this is where I think the divergence may occur and then maybe a reconvergence might occur as well, which is what I'm excited about here. So if I'm reading you right, you think that the drug war has failed. That's pretty obvious. Um, a lot of evidence to back you up. I feel like that's your belief. But then the next step is like, OK, so do you believe in the decriminalization of personal possession of all drugs? Are you asking? Yeah, that's like a question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Great. It, but but part of the but part of the complexity of the position, right, is if we had had that policy all along, we wouldn't be having these devastatingly horrible drugs like fentanyl laced cocaine. Um, we would, you know, it'd be the, the drugs available would be much different than they have become under the drug war. I think you're absolutely right, but we can't argue from that position because we're here. So let's argue from this position. Let's like take the world the way it is right now with this P2P meth shit, this wild animal tranquilizer that's starting to wreak havoc all over the place and and fentanyl, not just in cocaine, fentanyl in absolutely everything, right? Fentanyl's in heroin, fentanyl's in pot. If you don't buy it from the store, fentanyl is in everything. Bootleg Xanax, pill presses, all this kind of shit, right? So let's take the world as it is in this unfortunate state with everything you just laid out, I think, very, very accurately and, and intelligently and say, okay, so where do you go from here? So if we think that fighting the drug war, I, I mean, like we can have conversations about states versus federal action. I think it's obvious that federal policy on something like this is probably better than state by state policy. You might disagree with that, but let's just bring it down to the microcosm of, of Colorado for, for the time being. If you are able, if you tomorrow, uh, the voters decide of referendum like they did in Oregon or, or somebody waves a magic wand and says personal possession of any drug is now legal in the state of Colorado, you know, we're not going to prosecute you for anything like that. And we're like going down that path between cannabis and now psilocybin and, and other hallucinogenics, right? Like, seems like that's the direction. We've made small but important steps in that direction. Small but important steps. Here's my question. Even without fentanyl, heroin is highly addictive. Like, you know, people overdose and die on, die on it way before fentanyl was even introduced into the drug supply. Same thing with cocaine. Same thing with benzodiazepines, Xanax, um, uh, Percocets, other opioid-based painkillers. So in, in, the, in a libertarian world, right, where, where there's very little government involvement and, and free markets and, and interactions, consensual interactions between individuals is how we kind of solve every problem and, and, and deal with everything in front of us. What happens to, I think it is probably true, maybe we could argue this, that if all drugs are decriminalized, more people would probably be trying and doing drugs. Criminalization, I think, is a bad disincentive, but I think it is a disincentive. And I think it does reduce the number of people who would otherwise maybe either try or end up addicted to drugs. And substance use disorder is a, another thing that we should talk about because it's not like if Ari Armstrong tries drugs and somebody with substance use disorder potential tries drugs, you could just have a great night and have a great time and then the next day go back to your life. That person can end up having serotonin depletion and their body can just stop making like neurotransmitters and they have to get it from the outside and they spiral down and overdose one day. So like there's different brains react to this stuff different ways. I'm saying all this in context because I'm curious, like if we were able to do that without a 
decently large government involved system of treatment and recovery like where does the free market come in to solve that problem like how do you deal with drug addiction in a in a place where government does not have very much if any involvement in the healthcare system and i i don't have an awesome answer to that but let me you know let me point out right we have extraordinary problems of drug abuse in the status quo for sure so if you're saying we need the drug war to solve problems of addiction it's like we have the drug war and we have extraordinary problems of addiction and overdose. So I'm your solution not. ain't working. I'm, I'm not saying you're uh, particular, right? right but I'm of saying, and, but I think what I'm trying to say is like, I think that, and I know it, it's, it's hard to have an awesome answer to that. I don't intend this to be a, a trap question. I, I, it's an honest one, which is like, uh, so my mother-in-law was able to get into a recovery program. The first one didn't work. The second one did. So from 2017 until I'm talking to you right now in 2023, she had a 40-year-long heroin addiction and alcohol addiction, and she has been completely sober ever since. And that's because she got the treatment, got the recovery, got the tools she needed to stay, you know, sober. I don't like to use the word clean because I think the, it implies bad things, but she's been in recovery this entire time. If we had that kind of those kind of resources for everybody... Her, People on Medicaid and Social Security disability who overdose on drugs cost the system hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars a year, just depending on how many overdoses they have and what ER they visit and et cetera. People in treatment programs cost 60, 80K, maybe 100K a year. Any way you slice it, it's a gigantic amount of cost savings for the taxpayer if you're talking simply about keeping people alive. In the one case, it's over and over and over again. She had 22 heroin overdoses, I think, in 2017. And now she has zero. <laughs> and she has just literally not become, like, has literally become significantly less of, even if you just look at this cruelly and objectively, of a burden on taxpayers, right? Like, she costs everybody a lot less money now because we invested in treatment and recovery services for her. So, well, congratulations uh, to her and your family because that's a big, that's a big Thanks so much. Like, there's this guy, Robert Sanchez, uh, he wrote for 5280. He did like a whole profile on Brittany and her mom uh, back then. And it's a great article. You should read it. Um, but I like talked to him about something else like a year or two ago. And we hadn't talked in like four or five years. And he was like, hey, by the way, how's Stacy doing? I was like, oh, she's great. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, she's like, she's she's in the next room. She's like hanging out with my kid right now. He's like, what do you mean? So I took a picture of her and like sent it to him. And he goes, what, she's just like hot grandma now? I was like, I mean, you could say that. That's that's your taste, bud. But like, yeah, she's just like a normal person who like went through some shit and now she's on the other side of it. And like treatment and recovery certainly won't work for everybody. But having that as as a place to go, connecting people to services. And and I mean, we have wait lists that are hundreds of people long. We have people dying when they're on the wait list. We have, you know, and then all the stigma and shame that comes from political exploitation of the drug war, I think has its own level of fatality to it. So like, there's all these cascading issues, but fundamentally, like, yes, I don't disagree with you that like, if we didn't start this ill-fated drug war to begin with, we wouldn't have the sort of supply chain problems that we have right now, but we do. So where do we go from here and what do we do about it? For me, it's like an obvious answer is like, you must invest in the workforce for mental health and substance use treatment and disorder and for the like facilities and for the equipment and for the training. And that, yeah, that's an expensive proposition, but it's emotionally cheaper than letting people die for sure. And it is literally less expensive than having people cycle in and out of the ER who are already on public assistance in some way, shape or form. So I want to, I do want to clarify a couple of things about my position. I'm not Please. saying that no government action is ever warranted. So for example, if somebody is 
tainting drugs or just selling drugs that aren't what they claim to be, that's just straight up fraud. So right. I'm totally fine with the government cracking down on fraud. And if that happens to involve drugs, okay, crack down on the fraud involving drugs. And that would solve a lot of these kinds of problems sure. in terms of the tainted drug issue. Um, also, I'm not, I'm certainly not opposed to tort action when it comes to fraud related advertising claims, things of that nature. So there's a lot of room for government action in terms of so allowing like, or supporting that, like, uh, lawsuits, lawsuits in certain yeah, yeah. Against in, the in certain manufacturers, cases. like those are justified and the revenue that comes back to the state should be applied toward helping people who were injured by those unscrupulous companies doing their bad things. Yes. Now, I have not studied that particular issue in detail, sure. so I can't. There's a lot I, I just don't know about it. But yeah, assuming that there is some nexus to fraud um, in the advertising, like, hey, this is totally fine for you. You won't be addicted. And by the way, you're going to get totally So it kind of goes deeper than that. Do you know about the fifth vital sign? Mm-mm. So, so when you go to the doctor and they, and you you have like a injury of some sort and they ask you on a scale of one to 10, how, how much does this hurt? Have you been asked that question? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so that was put into place by biopharmaceutical companies who wanted to push pain pills. That wasn't there before. It was blood pressure. It was uh, pulse. It was blood oxygen level and, uh, and maybe heightened weight or, or one other vital sign. This one was introduced. People shouldn't be in pain. And we, Miraculous Drug Manufacturers of America, have a way to make sure they never are. These are safe and non-addictive. And, and the entire medical community, the point where this is like pre-printed on the whiteboard in every hospital in the country. Like it's, it's there already. Nobody drew it. What's the pain scale on this patient right now? That was put in there intentionally to create a situation and a context to be able to offer people opioid-based painkillers. And I, well, I do worry about this. I think maybe the reaction has gone the uh, has gone too far, because there is a real thing as pain. Of course, and and some people really are in excruciating pain. So you know whether but, but it's, it's through cancer, radiation, destruction of their bones, injury, and not the this is the type of person who really needs pain management. And here's how we're going to make sure they have a non-addictive pain management program, right? Well, like well those... I, I do really worry about saying, oh, the people in real pain who really need the drugs, they're going to pay for the sake of these other people who have oh, drug I'm addictions. I don't think they that should. I yeah. think is also a problem. Sure. In terms of the just straight up substance abuse addiction. I don't have really the sort of quote heart. Well, that's not true. I mean, there's people in my family who've had substance abuse issues. Hell, I had substance abuse issues in college in the sense that I drank way too much alcohol. I have I have family members who not not close, but in my more distant family who have drank themselves to death yeah. in their 40s. And so for me, my personal experience has been more about alcohol which of course is perfectly legal. And we don't say, well, people are drinking themselves to death with alcohol, or patent, passing out every night with alcohol. So let's ban I mean, alcohol. I mean, it's far again. and away the most deadly drug that we have. Like um, alcohol, pre alcohol deaths is are the number one death by drug that happened in this country. So, and yet hardly anyone says, oh, we need to go back to prohibition of alcohol because that has so many problems. And it's also, I think, fundamentally unjust to make people who use the drug responsibly to pay for the people who don't or or can't so i think but look again 
the a drug prohibition regime, alcohol prohibition, did not stop people from drinking alcohol. Might have reduced Quite it. Quite the opposite. <laughs> um, well, it, it it created a lot of other problems, like the government intentionally poisoning people to death, like murdering right. people. Those are bad. Okay. Um, so it created a lot of other problems, and you know the Al Capone criminal gangs. So I, but I think at some point we have to recognize that no matter what we do, I mean, we could literally line up the drug dealers quote along the sidewalks and have firing squads. We're still going to have people with substance abuse problems because there's going to be people making moonshine in their garages or whatever, whatever it is cooking up meth in their, in their sheds. Um, I mean, fentanyl is such a problem in part because it is so easy to manufacture. Like this is one of the, of the sort of unknown pieces of this current puzzle is like, it's not hard to make this shit. And and it's undetectable. It doesn't have an odor or a color or a, you can put it in anything. And it's supposed to be there in a sort of like an adulterant in order to make the you know drug better than it otherwise would have been, I suppose. Um, but it, you know, the the real big problem here is that that stuff is wildly easy to manufacture. And you know, I don't. I, I, this is a hard question. It's a hard problem. This is why I generally side with harm reduction strategies. And you're talking about policy around drugs, where it's like, okay, how can we save the most lives? And that's number one for me. Underneath that, maybe clicks down is like, how do you save money, right? And then like, what's the tension between these two things? Like, I'm willing to spend any amount of money on the planet Earth to save one human life. Like, I I really am. I'm a person with a disease that is incredibly expensive to treat. This is like another reason why I kind of come from the left on healthcare issues. I have ulcerative colitis. It's an autoimmune disease where my uh, immune system essentially attacks my large intestine because it thinks food is a pathogen and not the thing it's supposed to process and give me energy. So before I got treatment, I was 135 pounds. You can ask like anybody from back in the day, uh, you know, legislative, uh, Justin Everett saw me go through this and was actually quite sympathetic and a nice guy to talk to about this stuff during that time. And I, I was in the hospital a bunch of times. I could have died, um, but I ended up getting the treatment I needed. But the drug that I take every eight weeks, it's an IV infusion that costs $35,000. And that's because it is an amazing biological drug that took like decades and maybe a century of research to come up with. And it is very, very difficult to produce. It, they take the ovary of a Chinese dwarf hamster and then do all sorts of fucking crazy shit to it. And now I can eat a sandwich without shitting blood. Like that's amazing, right? Like I love that, but it costs a fortune. So if you don't have health insurance or any kind of universal health care or any kind of market-based, whatever you want, I die. Like I die in the apocalypse, right? Like I don't, I, the apocalypse sucks for a lot of reasons, but if like the medical industrial complex blinks out of existence, I'm dead in three months. That's a, there's, that's a definite fact. So this is like why I kind of come to these issues from a like, okay, let's get together and solve the problem type of thing. And what you said before about markets versus government and how libertarians or progressives may look at this thing is really interesting because they're both saying the same thing, right? It's like, we're skeptical of markets because we think someone's ripping us off or exploiting us or exploiting somebody else and we don't want to participate in that. Libertarians are skeptical of government because they think they're they're exerting force that they don't actually have the moral authority to or they're making decisions for people that should be left up to them themselves and, and, and the things like that. I hope I'm not putting too many words in your mouth. 
But ultimately, I think what we're talking, we're still just talking about groups of people getting together to do things, <laughs> right? And whether it's like groups of people getting together to trade goods and services freely or groups of people getting together, like, you know, Barney Frank, famous like lefty saying, government is simply the name we give to the things we choose to do together. That's like on every like college Democrats, like, you know, poster in their dorm room or whatever. Um, right, for sure. But like, you're essentially saying that about the market, right? Like the market is simply the name we give to the things we choose to, uh, you know, not be coerced into and interact with each other. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to loop back to drug substance abuse for just a second, because yeah. we're kind of closing in on a central issue, which is the government spending money to make people's lives better, which I will call welfare statism. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the more benign term is for that. Just social social program spending, I sure. guess. Yeah. Um, so I want to, there's no perfect solution to substance abuse. Um, the drug warriors certainly haven't come up with it. I think the government is doing a lot of things that makes the problem worse in various sure. ways. But I acknowledge that in the end, you're going to have some, a non-trivial number of people who have substance abuse issues. Because like you say, some people are more prone to this than others due to physiological like or psychological biological. reasons. Yeah, it's it's kind of insane. There's like a lot. I'm glad you said psychological because sometimes it's not just like roll of the genetic dice. Sometimes it's like you were abused terribly as a child and you found that you could self-medicate with alcohol when you were 13 and here you are now in the street, right? Like there's a lot of that too. So, so it seems very plausible to me. Well, first of all, the expectation that you're going to save everybody is probably unrealistic no matter what you do. Hard but it would be to good internalize that, but you're probably right. But but I, it's very plausible that many many of those people can be helped through some system of good treatment. I mean, a lot of these programs seems not very effective. Well, this um, is the thing: you need evidence based programs going into this, right? So, like medication assisted treatment is like the gold standard right now in harm reduction for substance use okay. disorder because it is you know Suboxone or some of these other drugs that help you wean yourself off of the chemical dependency that your brain has developed and like get you back to a baseline where you can start to recover from there. There's a lot of promise in hallucinogenic therapy um, with MDMA and psilocybin and even LSD um, being used as therapeutics to help people sort of hit a hard reset on their brain chemistry. Like those things are very promising. They don't work for everybody and there's not enough. Have you read the Michael Pollan book, How to Change Your Mind? Mm -mm. It's worth it's worth your time. It's an exploration of hallucinogenics um, and psychedelics uh, for therapeutic purposes, and he's just like a food writer <laughs> that went all the way down the uh, you know psychedelics rabbit hole and came out as a pretty strong advocate. But yeah, I mean, there's there's all these therapies that are promising. You're right. You're not going to save everybody, but like, it I think feels to me like a moral obligation to one another to, if, if you're lucky enough to be a guy like me who like, I, you know, had my fun in college and didn't end up addicted to drugs, thank God. Like, and somebody like a few of my friends and Brittany's friends who have unfortunately died from overdoses over the years, like, just like I have ulcerative colitis and I'm very expensive to treat. And I think that, you know, maybe you don't, and we should make a situation in which like that, we all work together to make sure I get the healthcare I need. And if you get into a car accident, you get the, you know, your leg treated if it's injured or whatever, figure out what that looks like. The same thing I think should apply to substance use disorder, which is a, you know, disease in the DSM, you know, every med the AMA, the American medical association, you know, we can argue about this too, 
kind of endorses harm reduction strategies like supervised use sites, for instance. That is a position of the American Medical Association because it is known to save lives. Which I'll just point out, it requires the government to allow certain things. Isn't right? that something? So it's that's that's totally consistent with my position um, yeah. in terms of at least allowing those as possibilities. But I am circling around here, right? I acknowledge that at a certain point there's a problem because the people who have substance abuse issues are not the kind of people are often going to be the kind of people who don't have the funds to get into treatment and to get into right. these long-term, like maybe you need help for a couple of years with your housing to just pay for your basic bills, to have some training to get, because it's, it's, you know, I haven't had this experience myself, but I can imagine and extrapolate it. For some people, it's a very long road and not everybody has the family support structure. Oftentimes, um, if you have a substance use disorder, you have burned every bridge three or four times. And and when you're at the end of your rope and when you're homeless or experiencing homelessness and you're really desperate, like you have nobody else to turn to because your disease got the best of you and you stole from people or they have no reason to trust you any further or you've, you know, coerced them in some way and done a terrible thing. And you're probably, you might have fallen behind on your insurance payments. So you no may doubt. not be, you may not have health insurance. So right, there's so a lot of just data, it, it's day to day. And in the case of fentanyl, sometimes it's like hour to hour, right? Where like the, the dragon comes back really fast. And, 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 you know, my mother-in-law used to say, it's not death I'm afraid of, it's withdrawal. Because withdrawal is the most physically and mentally painful thing a human being can experience. It is just, it is like being sapped of every single, you know, molecule of your life force. And then also being an agonizing physical pain on top of it. So I'm I'm going to generalize here, though. So I think that there are I, I'm recognizing there are cases where somebody just needs some outside intervention to help to get their lives back on track. And if that doesn't happen, they're not going to get back on track and they're right. just going to do something. They're going to die in the gutter or something like that. Um, So this this poses a big problem for sort of the purist or traditional libertarians who want to say government should not be providing wealth transfers, welfare right. state, social program spending, anything like that. Because the second you're like, yes, we should have a large, well-funded and sophisticated system of mental health treatment, then you need like an entire apparatus with which to administer that, right? Well, well that, yeah, that, I mean, you can see where this is sort of the precipice by which someone steps from being a, a libertarian in that sense to being a progressive, sure. or at least could make that step. And so just so, I mean, sort of the traditional libertarian step or step here in argument is to say, well, first of all, look at all the ways government is making the problem worse, first of right. all. And then let's rely on voluntary charity to solve, which is super easy to say, right? And yeah, then like, in practice doesn't well, materialize hardly ever. Well, you know, it's it's a more complicated debate than probably a lot of people on the left want to acknowledge, but it's, you know, but it's, I can see how my, my quote, my side wants to use this as a trump card. It's like, well, there's problems X, Y, and Z. Well, we need private charity. We don't need government. Yeah, but it's right? like if philanthropy was going to solve problems in an entirely libertarian society, why wouldn't philanthropy be solving all the problems in a quasi-libertarian society? Well, see, here's the second, here's the secondary card, right? Because yeah. we say, well, government is simply by government doing it, it's pushing people out of of that realm. So okay. the argument really is, right? I mean, look, first of all, I, I don't know a single, I don't know, I cannot name a single libertarian or Ayn Rand fan who says there should be no charity in society. Oh, sure. So the, the line is that there should be 
voluntary charity network, a voluntary safety net. Okay. Right. So the debate is not between fuck you, go, go die in the gutter right. or progressivism. The, the, the real debate is can private charity quote a free market, which includes things like philanthropy, can that solve the problems or do we absolutely need government? Now, let me also say, right, there's a lot of people who call themselves libertarians who are all on board with the welfare state. Indeed, if you, uh, there's a book out by Kopelman, I believe his name is, critical of the libertarian movement because he points out things like, and I've only, I've heard an interview, I haven't read the book yet. He points out things like, well, Friedrich Hayek was fine with the welfare state. So what are you guys doing exactly in saying, and a lot of that has to do with Ayn Rand's influence and people like Marie Rothbard who are, very absolutist in terms of saying, well, you know, Murray Rothbard went down the anarchist line. Ayn Rand went down the sort of minimal state line, um, which I've been, you know, very influenced by over the years. But nobody is saying, you know, but that the line is private charity versus government welfare. Sure. And so and then the question is, can private charity work? And, you know, I put it this way. There are two books. There's one about the English experience, one about the U.S. experience, about there being um, these um voluntary networks for so mutual aid societies and yeah. how government basically pushed those out. So there is a more rich discussion on my side than people on the left will often acknowledge. Yet I, I disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. But, but I go back to, yeah, this is a big problem for um, sort of the, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, the people who don't want government to do anything except maybe fund the police and the military. Well, let me add another wrinkle. Cause I think there is one that, and I think you identified quite a few and I appreciate that, but the, the problem with the private charity argument is that then you're essentially left to the whims of a handful, maybe in a libertarian society that generates so much more wealth, it's larger than a handful, of benevolent billionaires or, or wealthy folks who, who just happen to choose substance use disorder or child hunger or health care or whatever it is. And I am pretty against letting the whims of individuals who command and have hoarded whether earned or not, you could have that argument for sure, a large number of resources. Like I'm not going to trust Elon Musk to like distribute ulcerative colitis medication. There's no fucking way. Right. So you want to like, trust that, Donald Trump instead? Well, this is my, that you're not making a terrible point. And like, and I, I hear well, that. No. Right. That's, that's the comeback, right? It's like the libertarians are like, you want to trust the bureaucrats and the politicians who are self-serving and, you know, ideologically blinded and all these things. I want to add a point about bureaucracy here, because this is a thing that I think may be happening on purpose or maybe a, a, a happy consequence for like anti-government folks, especially sort of like rank and file conservatives. Whenever a new program arises or an old program exists, Republicans, conservatives, and even many Democrats want to put like accountability on it, want to put metrics of success and performance standards and Toyota lean program and whatever the du jour, you know, system thing is at the moment, they want to slap that on Medicaid and, and put uh, uh, means tests on it and say, if you have this much income, you're in, if you have this much income, you're out, blah, blah. The consequences of all of that shit from the accountability to the tracking, to the bureaucracy is more bureaucracy is more government is more paperwork is more codes in more computers is more need for more administrative state. And, and this is why, so my company uh, worked on the Prop FF campaign, which I imagine you voted against. Um, it was the universal school meals, this one that we just had on the ballot in 2022. Um, it was referred by the through the legislature, um, that and GG, both of which I love and support, both of which Brittany happened to bring to the legislature as well. And my company ended up running the, the campaign for FF. And 
it was like kind of the cleanest Tabor question we've ever had. That wasn't a syntax, right? It was $300,000 or more free school meals for every single kid in, Col in Colorado, breakfast and lunch. No, like that's it. That's the trade-off. The voters thought that was a great idea and we won overwhelmingly. That is a situation where I think government makes a lot of sense as the tool of redistribution of resources. Call it wealth redistribution, call it what you want. You have hungry kids over here. You have rich people over here. The rich people are not voluntarily giving enough money to the charities in order to feed the hungry kids. So the other power that we have in play comes in and says, we're going to do it for you. We're going to make sure all these school districts have the money and it goes to this. And we're going to make sure these are the folks that pay. That works for me. Does it work for you? Well, I want to sort of broaden the discussion a little bit. Sure. So I want to point out there are, as I was suggesting, there's a lot of self-proclaimed libertarians who are fine with the welfare state. And so one guy, he's an academic named Matt Zwolinski, and he is a big advocate of the basic income or something like that. Oh, UBI basic, type of thing. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what he calls it, universal basic income. Um, you know, there's nuances in what you're proposing. So let's just say well, Nixon was the first guy to propose that. You know that? Well, Milton Friedman proposed the quote negative income tax, which is that is exactly along right. those sure lines. Yeah. And so well, let me just tell you where I'm at, right? I mean, traditionally I have been, you know, no, we should not have government welfare. We should have minimalist government and all of that should be taken care of through private institutions. I mean, I'm willing now to sort of take a step back and take try to take time to rethink that. So I want to read through Zwolinski's works and see what I think about, about these things. Um, so I, I just want to acknowledge that that exists, but I want to throw this idea of the basic income. So even from, so for, if I'm going to play the traditional libertarian angle, to me, this would be sort of a second best solution. Like the best thing would be to get government out altogether, but if we're going to have government, let's make it minimalist and without as much instead of having a hundred welfare programs, let's just have one that gives people money based on means testing. Um, is that the kind of thing like, okay, if I could just today trade every single welfare program, now I'm going to include some things as welfare programs that you are not going to be happy with like public education. So right. we can argue about what's included and what's not. Okay. But if we can, whatever package of welfare programs, if I could immediately trade all that all the bureaucracy behind that and all the wasted money behind administering those programs for straight up cash transfer means tested to the poor. I would, I would, I would push that button in a heartbeat because to me, even if you take that as a second best, now I think as takes that as like a first best, like that's what he is right. aiming for. Right. But either way, standard. whether that's, whether that's what you think is the optimal solution or like a suboptimal, but the best we can do solution that to me makes a lot of sense. Um, is that, are you willing to, I, how much do you sympathize with that? I really struggle with UBI. Um, I really, really do. Cause I want to like it. Like I, like all of my instincts say it scratches all those, those itches I was talking about before. It maximizes the amount of time you get to pursue your own endeavors. It minimizes the amount of agony and misery you experience between p filling out paperwork, being at the DMV, yelling at an insurance agent on the phone, whatever the fuck it is. It does, it does a lot of that work. The, the places where I get a little, and that's why the U and UBI, I think is important, universal. So this is the thing with FF. You know, some, a, a staffer of mine, this guy, Jeremy Flood, one of the smartest people I ever met in my entire life. He was like almost 10 years younger than me when he worked for me at Progress Now. He made a lot of our videos. Just a brilliant guy. Um, he said something to me once I'll never forget. And he said, universal programs have herd immunity. And by that he means if everybody gets something, the same thing, 
nobody's resentful of the person who's getting a thing they didn't get because everybody gets the same thing. So when people would, when liberals mostly would, would come to us on the FF campaign and say, why do we need to give rich kids lunch? They're rich. They can afford it. They should pay for their fucking lunch. Why don't we put a, a means test on this thing? My answer is it costs a ton of money to administer that. Everybody getting the same thing reduces the amount of resentment and almost eliminates it in many cases. I was like a, a poor kid growing up in public schools, right? There were lots of poor kids growing up in public schools where I was. And we lived in a really rich part of New Jersey. So the kids with the special race bracelet or wristband or the card to get the free lunch, they were ostracized and, and, and marginalized and bullied relentlessly, right? Especially by these rich kids. Like, if you get rid of all that shit and you just get in line, everybody gets the same sandwich. Like that's that in my opinion is a really good thing. So so when you apply it to any issue, income being one of them, I'm really tempted to want universal basic income. However, I think universal is the point of dispute here within so that, that discussion. Is a that's so. a point of dispute for sure. And I would, if you're doing a basic income thing, I would want it to be universal. Then you have the sort of like, you know, give and take from landlords. Well, we're just going to raise the rent $35,000. If everybody gets $35,000, there's some merit to that argument. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, and I think that there's some inflationary things that can happen with that. But I, I resist the idea of means testing things for the, for the idea that you spend more money administering a program often than you end up spending through it, which I think is fucking crazy. Um, especially with all this accountability stuff that is that is makes a lot of sense, but I think counterintuitively does a lot of the opposite work that it claims to do by not putting more resources in more people's hands and instead creating this administrative state to make sure that things are actually going the way somebody said they should at some point and checking and checking and rechecking. Um, but I also think that like this is not going to make me fucking popular with you know any left-leaning person that listens to your show, so. Here we go. I was really broke when I moved to Colorado. I had like $1,300 in savings bonds that I got for my fucking bar mitzvah and I cashed them out. And I came here with like 35K in student loan debt because I went to public school in New Jersey. Um, so not a lot. And like my grandpa's car that was like a real piece of shit, like a 2001 Dodge Intrepid that was, my friend called it a dinner cruise because that's what it was like driving that thing. And I made seven fifty an hour as a legislative aide at the state capitol, and I would teach SAT and LSAT courses on the side to, like, you know, with Kaplan to, like, pay for scrabbling together enough cash to pay rent in a two-bedroom house with three roommates. So it was like we were living in squalor. We were all very poor. They all had, like, minimum wage service industry jobs, and I was trying to get this career started. Once I moved in with Brittany, I was the fifth roommate in a three-bedroom house so like same kind of situation we used to call it the democratic halfway house because there was a lot of people sleeping on mattresses on the floor who were doing field programs for bennett or james mejia or whatever and our kind of joke kind of truth was like every couple of years we would make a little bit more money in our jobs she got elected i you know became a more important staffer and we'd get rid of a roommate and i moved in with her in 2011 and we got married in 2017 because that's the year that we were able to afford to live without any more roommates so once we got rid of the last roommate we got married and that experience was miserable. Having to live with other people sucks. Having no privacy sucks. Having people who, you know, smoke cigarettes inside when you don't want people smoking cigarettes inside and, and won't pick up the cat shit off the floor and the litter box is overflowing and they're part of the house. That's all terrible. But what it did was it made me really fucking work my ass off to get out of that situation. Really appreciate when I was able to be self-sufficient. Brittany and I were able to be self-sufficient. 
And that work ethic stays with me to this day where I may not have to work 80 hours a week to make ends meet like I did when I was in my 20s, but I work fucking hard. I like working hard and I value hard work. I think that there is something I'm not going to take like a right wing or conservative or even libertarian standpoint here, but I think that we should carefully examine, first of all, the inflationary question. If you give everybody $35,000 a year, does everything just become $35,000 a year more expensive? That's a legitimate argument and a question in this debate, I think. And secondly, are people going to be incentivized or disincentivized from following their dreams, working hard and being productive if their basic needs are met? I don't, I think it is unbelievably cruel to have a society in which like you're only worth the amount that you can produce for the machine of capitalism, right? There are people with disabilities and people with mental health issues that just cannot participate in that system in any reasonable way, right? And and other people for a variety of reasons that may or may not. But I do worry because of the path I had to take to get where I got and the path that I see other people taking now a generation behind me that I feel are like, what, where's the hustle? Like, where's the grind? Where's the 80 hour a week thing? I, I feel like get off my porch. I'm an old, you know, crusty Gen Xer or something. But like, I do think that's a question that needs an answer. And I don't think the answer is, oh, it'll be fine. Uh, what do you think? Well, let me, let me just say, I mean, we've gone down a rabbit hole that we could spend, you know, months on. And people I do. So. I mean, people people spend careers talking about this kind of stuff. So yeah. I think we're just going to have to acknowledge that we're not going to come up. <laughs> we're uh, during you put this me right here. Podcast, we're not going to solve the problem. <laughs> it's just going to we're going to have to leave this hanging at a certain point. Um, but I wanted to just talk about one aspect of this on the school lunch thing, not being means. Sure. I sort of understand the rationale there. I regard that as sort of a very marginal change to a bigger government program. So to me, it's just, to my mind, we're tweaking an existing government program in a fairly minor way. So I'm not real enthusiastic about it, but I'm not real. You don't think it's about a it step towards creeping communism? Like, well, I mean, you know, that step was the government taking over the schools. So you know, we're, we're <laughs> which we're not, which we're not going to talk about. Um, I mean, we, you know, we can, but. Um, I think was, the public education episode is going to have to be its own thing. I'm, I have um, pretty strong feelings well, about this. Well, well, okay. So, like I said, right? Well, okay. So let me let me stick with my thought, and then I'll just yeah. make that really brief. But I don't want to spend without getting too far on this. I don't think that generalizes to the general problem of whether welfare needs to be means tested, because when we're talking about just general at the le general welfare spending, you're means testing at some level. I mean, because even at the level of taxes, because you you take 35k a year from a guy in taxes and you give him 35k in the welfare benefit. Okay, right. that's just you're just giving the money back and forth, right? The 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 aim is to get, transfer the money, some of the money from people who have more resources to people who have less resources. If you're sure. not doing that, you're not doing anything, right? Right. So at some point, you have to you have to have enough bureaucracy to be able to means test. It's just a matter of where are you doing the means testing, in the taking the money or the giving the money. So to me, right, I don't, sure. I don't see, I would rather, I guess I'd rather do it at the giving the money if we're going to do that, which, which so you'd means rather it's, have it's like not a universal tax right. if you had to have one ver and a system of means testing on the benefit side, let's just call it that versus a progressive income tax and no means testing on the distribution side. Is that, well, well to me, like that amounts to the same thing. I mean, if That's you have a mean. more progressive income tax, that just means you have to have. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we are even people who advocate a flat income tax actually advocate a progressive income tax because you exempt the, cer the certain portion of wealth to, at the outset. So it's just a step. Right. It's two steps instead of like five steps. So instead of this several whole, steps, which takes yeah. a lot more government to administer. And so this 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 whole steps. debate to me is sort of artificial. But we're just talking about you know how we're calculating the funds transfer in the end. Sure. And like, um, if you believe, and, and this is where I think libertarians like get nervous and I, I understand why, because my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So I've got the same sort of perspective as you on like government can do unspeakably evil shit to people and has plenty of times to make me pretty damn skeptical of government. So I'm with you on that. But like, if government, which has a, essentially, with some exceptions, a monopoly on the use of force, right? Like you can defend yourself and your property to certain extents in certain places, certain tools, but not in others. Government has a monopoly on force. They also happen to be the ones redistributing all the resources. Like in a in a working democratic republic, like that sort of makes sense. But in like a kleptocracy or a Putin regime or something that's happening in North Korea or Iran or China, you could see that going absolutely haywire and 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 being terribly wrong and rewarding people with resources for doing the wrong things and punishing people with taking their resources for doing the right things, all, all sorts of, of bad outcomes. But I guess that's like supposed to be the check, right? Like the, the check is supposed to be the, the election. The check is supposed to be the democracy. The check is supposed to be the representation. And it's not as accurate as it maybe once was or as active as it maybe once was, but like having an election every two years, like Brittany's already running again. Right. She just got elected. She's already got to start thinking about how she's going to do the campaign the next time around, even though, you know, 15 points is, is a good W. We don't take things for granted around here. We win races because we work. That's why um, you guys win and the Republicans don't win. I mean, I had a full time job. I got paid zero dollars to work on her campaign because we decided that that was an obviously stupid move to make if we were going to. I worked endlessly on that thing. I mean, she obviously did way more work on it than I did, as did her staff, but I was involved a lot. And, you know, the degree to which it, to win, she got a bigger margin than Doug Lamborn. I mean, people don't kind of realize, like, the sort of significance of, of, of what had happened there, where it was like, they were talking shit like they were going to win the seat, and they lost by a bigger margin than that dude, I don't even remember his name, who lost the Lamborn, right? But anyway, yeah, I don't know. I'm on um, topic. Well, let me just say, so I think that there is an element here in which a, let's just, I'm going to call it a basic income. I'm going to drop the term universal here, right? In which it could be more radical than many people are initially aware. Because to me, like the idea, let's tax a poor working couple who doesn't have children in order to subsidize millionaires with kids in the public schools. It's like, how is that progressive again? Let's tax working class people you know, making bare minimum, let's put a payroll tax on them so that we can subsidize rich millionaires on social security. How, I, how is that progressive? I don't, I don't, those kind of programs, wealth distribution from the poor to the rich, I don't get. And that so I when understand. I, that's pretty indefensible. Right? When like I talk that. about things like a, like a potential of a basic income, whether you consider it optimal or second, second best, I would like to talk about things like why are we transferring wealth from poor people to rich people with kids in the public schools on social security, whatever it is, right? You can make some much more rat, depending on what you put in the basket. I mean, if sure. you just, if you add a basic income to all the stuff we already have, that's, 
terrible in my view. If of you course, replace that's literally things, just doubling the spending or something, you, you want trade-offs, right? Like you, you want the negative income tax, right? You want, I want, you want simplicity off the government books. Yeah, right. I want things to make sense. I want there to be little room for political haggling and maneuvering and corporate welfare working in here and interest group payoff. I want to minimize that, maximize the actual effectiveness in terms of helping people get back on their feet, helping the, the person with substance abuse, get their life put back together helping the people, you know, their father died of cancer or whatever. And the mother needs to, has three kids and she's trying to go back to work and she doesn't have any marketable, you know, few marketable skills. Or childcare, right? Yeah, that too. Um, and so, you know, I would like to maximize the effectiveness. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of discussion there. And there's also, I'll, I'll just say, right. There's a lot more that can be said from my side in terms of how government screws everything up. Like on healthcare, in my mind, the federal government has been massively screwing up healthcare for decades, starting with the tax policies that drove health health insurance into employer uh, provided. It is incredibly employer hard to argue that, with that. That, that was that was like, horrible. You're right. I mean that that's one this of the that's, that's that... arguably the worst single thing that ever happened to healthcare in America is pu pushing insurance into an employer system. That's just I don't screwed up so there much. At all, I think that's totally right. We have Kaiser as like our health provider, like the closed loop sort of HMO. We're privileged in a lot of ways. My kid's doctor and my doctor are literally three blocks that way. Like I walk him to the doctor, or I bike him to the doctor. If it's not whatever's happening outside right now, uh, I we use our feet to get there and it's amazing. It is inexpensive. There's no incentive to jack up prices because everyone's paying for everything in the same system. The doctors and the drugs and the pharmaceutical techs and everybody else is all in the same company. The payer is the provider. The provider is the payer. It is the most efficient system that we've ever been a part of versus like this, you have to, yeah, this in-network doctor at this private practice is and this one isn't, yeah, yeah. The whole like closed loop system, and I was talking to a doctor. I was over there the other day. He's like, every system has its pluses and minuses, but like he's done private practice, he's done this HMO thing, he's done the nonprofit model. This one to him was like the fairest for everybody. Doctors get paid well, have a good lifestyle, have good working hours and good working conditions. Patients are happy, get the healthcare they need, get to see a doctor or a specialist within within a reasonable amount of time. Doesn't cost a fortune for the basic plan or the medium plan. It's like somewhat affordable on the exchange for sort of like an average income earner family of four in the state of Colorado. If we're going to move toward healthcare policy, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see us either incentivize or somehow create and not like the free for all system of, of like medicine, get rid of insurance and just people let people pay cash at the doctor. I don't see how that like doesn't kill people like me and also generally like hurt people like my mother-in-law. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, my very brief reaction is everybody agrees today's healthcare in the United States today is a disaster. Obamacare yep. did not help much. It did not, it arguably helped it insure more people. more people. Okay. But it didn't really solve the basic problems. Certainly um, not. I, I think, think that both you, of those things can be true. I think we need to distinguish between major life altering medical procedures like cancer, heart attack versus routine care, the same way that we distinct, we don't, we don't insure our cars for oil changes. We insure them for getting in a car crash. I think there's totally. a similar, uh, there's, there's a similar idea there with healthcare. So I'm, I'm totally fine with, I think we'd be better off if we had a basically a cash system for routine care with real insurance. The problem is we don't really, we don't arguably, we don't even have health insurance in this country. 
because you can't buy long-term insurance. You it's attached to your job. So then that creates all kinds of problems with, um, you know, we, we're agreeing on this point, right? You can't leave your job in a lot of cases because yeah. you lose your insurance. And these are, these are big, big problems. I mean, the only reason I could quit my job is because my wife had health insurance through her job and that, and for us, it's just about making sure our kid is covered, right? Like we, we've been with and without health insurance at various points of our lives. Like I said, right now, I really can't go without health insurance, big, big problems if I do, but now it's just about our kid. And like, when I was like, I can quit my job because Brittany just got elected to the state Senate and has a four-year term, I'll at least have two years to get my shit together and like get on the exchange or find a job with insurance if this whole like independent consulting thing doesn't work out. Luckily it did. Um, and do you know, uh, members of the United States House of Representatives are on the Obamacare exchange in the uh, Washington DC area that was part of the law. They don't have like super cool, fancy health insurance. It is just an exchange program. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know the details of that. Interesting. But most people don't. All the rumors, by the way, the the you get paid for life if you win two elections. Total fucking bullshit. The benefits are not great. They're sort of below average uh, for members of Congress. Probably better in like the federal. Work you just course, haven't figured out how to game the system yet. Yeah, I uh, don't intend it, to. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, I think there's extraordinary corruption in Washington D.C. I don't um, think you can argue against that. I think, yeah, that's definitely true. So I'm I'm gonna kind of make a comment to viewers. I think that we're not going to make anybody happy with our fairly long discussion here. I um, had a nice time. I, <laughs> I, I hope you did. Well, we left. No, it's good. I think that we've at least hinted at where there are some disagreements, where there are some points in common, or at least some overlap. Um, but you know, clearly some of these issues we're talking about, whether it's healthcare in the United States public education, drug policy. These are such big monumental problems. You know, two dudes doing a podcast for a couple hours is not going to, is only going to scratch the bare surface of that. So, you know, we, we know this, I think viewers are smart enough to acknowledge that we're, we're not trying, we, we're, the goal is not to solve all those problems right now. It's to try but to get a sense the, of how we're thinking. That wasn't the question you wanted to answer. And, and that wasn't the problem you wanted to solve. The question you wanted to answer was, can two people with pretty different viewpoints sit down and have a civilized conversation? I think we proved that we can for two hours and highly likely many, many more than that. So like, I'm very excited and encouraged by this. And, and I hope you are too, because that was the question I came here to answer is, are we going to end up in a screaming match? And I know you probably as the host of the show held back uh, and let, and like you said, let me kind of go on a few tangents you otherwise would have argued with. And that that's all well and good. But I would say that in these two hours, we at least answered that question with what I think is a resounding yes. And then I think the trick is to keep it going, whether it's on a podcast or not. I think having these open lines of dialogue and communication are absolutely essential to getting through this very fucking weird period in American political history. And if people like you and me, especially who are like, I think, open minded, intellectually honest, but have our values and our sort of, you know, worldviews pretty well set but are open to the conversation have more of these and not less of these we're more likely to come up with actual answers than not that's my thought okay i'd like to return just very quickly to where we started with this which is some personal issues <clears throat> just because i'm curious so we'll leave the, all, all the big policy things behind i think how do you plan because i have a seven-year-old i think you're you have a kid roughly in he that turns age. three tomorrow oh younger okay i didn't he's mm -hmm. fairly young um yeah he's a little baby so how are you going to manage the District of Columbia in this congressional position, being a Colorado-based family, 
And then a side question is, so I've thought in the context of the Colorado legislature, I mean, it's corner to corner. It can be a seven, eight hour drive. And that's when there's no snow on the passes. For sure. Why, why are we not doing more remote uh, legislative action so that more people could serve? I, and why are we not talking about this at the congressional level? We have, I mean, you and I are, we live a few miles from each other and it's more convenient to do this over Zoom than to actually meet in person. Why can't yeah. they do this in Congress? And would this not reduce some of the special interest lobbying pressure and allow more normal people to actually serve in Congress who can't uproot their whole family and go to DC for however many months of the year it's going to turn out to be? So how do you, how do you, how are you coping with these issues and what do you think about them? It's, it's, thank you. It's, it's a hard question we've been wrestling with. The first answer is that the Republicans sent, put their calendar out like right before McCarthy ended up finally getting elected speaker. So Steve Scalise, the majority leader, set the calendar. This is napkin math, but the United States House of Representatives basically does in a year what the Colorado House of Representatives does in 120 days. So like the Colorado House is in session Monday to Friday, often over the weekends from nine or 10 in the morning till you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 at night, every single day for exactly 120 days. Often it, those weekends count in the calendar and often they'll be brought in to finish the people's business. And we have like an 80% bill passage rate. Like all of the numbers in Colorado are way better than they are at the federal level. And, and, and you know, maybe the, the Republic was intentionally designed to be slow and, and policy was supposed to be hard to make. I don't think it was supposed to be this hard to make. Um, but, you know, it was federalism and, and the construction of this country is sort of like a checks and balances, slow everything way the fuck down, definitely get it right or as right as you can type of design. So, yeah. And there's a lot of merit to that. Don't get me wrong. Incrementalism. I was championing it earlier. So to your question, Davis and I and Brittany, we all live here in Colorado. We're going to stay living here. We all live here very much on purpose. She grew up here. Davis was born here. I moved here and I'm not going back to the East Coast even though like it's way better for my skin sort of like humidity and moisture wise, I learned how to use moisturizer in Colorado and now I'm good to go. She gets on the plane most Mondays, gets off the plane most Thursday afternoons and Davis is in school every day. I pick him up or sometimes he has a play date with his friend or whatever. Those four days a week where it's just me in the mornings are not easy, right? Like, but I'm not a single dad. Brittany's there to help all those other days, she's actually, this is an off week right now, thank goodness, because otherwise she would have been caught in airport hell in all likelihood. Um, and for the last two hours, you and I have been talking here. She's been hanging out with him in the living room. When you and I are done, it's my turn. I'm going to go out there and hang out with him for a little bit and play with him and 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 do all that. So, Well, um, thank, her, thank her for me. I will. And thank you for me. I mean, this has been awesome. And I actually am not going to do that because I am five minutes late to a meeting right now. <gasps> Um, so I did not expect this to go on for two whole hours, but I'm really glad it did. Um, to, to, but the last point you made is an important one. And I think it's controversial. Newt Gingrich made the decision to kick everybody out of DC and send them all back to their districts and say, go be with your people. Don't be in the swamp. Don't let the DC culture of corruption influence you. There was a ulterior motive to that. And the ulterior motive was that he wanted to concentrate power in the hands of leadership and not in individual members because leadership never left Washington. They couldn't possibly, the speaker, the majority leader. So a small group of people, um, and this actually played out a lot in the McCarthy debates. If you like go back and watch that shit, most of those people were arguing from a place of insanity, but some of them were essentially making this point, which is that there was a camaraderie 
and there was a civility and there was a culture. This is like the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan thing where like people knew each other as human beings. They got together and solved problems because they all lived together. They all kind of coexisted. They all kind of went to dinner together and got drinks afterwards and yada, yada. I think there's about a thousand other things that contributed to the polarization in American politics today, but I don't think it's insane to say that that's one of them. But to your point, there are so many barriers for regular fucking people to be able to serve in office, especially federal office, that it is absolutely amazing someone like Brittany Pedersen ever got there. Like, really, truly, honestly. Like, she, like, you know, did her Senate gig for the year, but she didn't have another job. That hurt our family's income quite a bit. Like, we had to tighten up and, you know, put some things on the credit card for a little while. But, like, we're lucky she got there. It's a decent paying job, and we're going to be able to make up for that. But, like, there's an, a young, another young, there's a lot of young moms in this class, which is really cool. There's one uh, called Marie Glusenkamp Perez out of Washington State. And she is like, she, her kid is like eight months old or something. And like, she, that is like the most sacred, precious time you can have with your kid. I got so much time off of work and then I quit my job and started my own company. So I got even more time with him. And then the fucking world ended. So, you know, conveniently, we're all kind of inside for Davis's first year of existence, which like that was weirdly lucky for us because we're super privileged. Um, and we're able to spend time with him. But like, you're absolutely right about everything you said. Remote participation, I think, should be more normalized. But I do think that there's something to the get to know you, like hang out, form personal relationships, especially across the aisle, that you can only really get from being regularly in person with other people. So I, it's a kind of a give and take. Understood. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having I, me, man. I this was really it. fun. And, uh, yeah, maybe we can, you know, talk more later. I mean, I hope that more people can start talking more and trying to find more common ground as we go. And congratulations on your wife's victory and Thanks, good luck trying to manage everything because that that doesn't that sounds pretty hard, honestly, to me. So um, far, we're lucky. We've been getting along, but it hasn't really started yet. So we'll, right. we'll see. It'll be hard, but we're but it's worth it. And if it's not there's a lot of other people who probably want that job. So we'll, we'll see, but I'm in the district. Me on. I'm, I'm coming you sure for you. <laughs> yeah, you're still a registered Republican, man. So the yeah. odds are not with you, but um, let's do, let's do this again on or off the mic, man. This was really fun. I really appreciate the time and it was just super fun to talk to you. You're a smart guy. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. This has been the self and society podcast. Find us on Substack. Mm-hmm.